Okay, so I have an unfair advantage here, again, where um, one, I'm super passionate about podcasting. I can't think of like doing anything else for a living once this is like presented as an opportunity, right? But two, I study, in many cases, I study like the beginning of industries for a living. You can kind of think about that. Like there's so many examples where like the people that were able to build great wealth, they built great wealth because they got into, into a very beginning of an industry, right? So I've studied like the beginning of the American automotive industry, the beginning of the technology industry in both hardware and software, uh, the beginning of racing industry with like and building supercars like the Ferraris and the Lamborghinis and the Bugattis and all that stuff. The beginning of the NBA. I just did a two-part series on Kobe Bryant. I always say on the podcast, like history doesn't repeat, human nature does. At the beginning of industries, two things happen over and over again. Everybody says you're too late. It's too late to get involved. And everybody says the numbers can't possibly get bigger. Hey guys, welcome back to the Fort Podcast. My name is Chris Powers and I wanna thank you for joining me today. This show is an open-ended discussion and journey covering real estate, business, entrepreneurship, and investing. I would love to hear from you by tweeting me at Fort Worth Chris on Twitter. And if you've enjoyed this show, I would be super grateful if you would follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to. And if on Apple, it would mean a lot if you'd leave a rating and review. Last but not least, you can find all these episodes on YouTube. Thank you so much again for joining me and enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by Fort Capital. Are you a commercial real estate investment broker or anyone out there with an off-market Class B industrial deal between 15 and $100 million? Fort Capital offers industry-leading incentives, including a bonus, the ability to co-invest, and exclusive partner trips for those that close deals with us. Join Fort Capital's deal incentive program today to be eligible for these incentives and more by going to www.fortcapitallp.com backslash connect. If you're anything like me, you're constantly reading. And if you're tired of sifting through dozens of online blogs and Twitter feeds to get the commercial real estate news you need, subscribe to the CRE Daily Newsletter. Think of this email like your smart, no bullshit friend breaking down all the biggest stories, acquisitions, trends, and fundraisings of the day and compiling them into one digestible email that you'll actually enjoy reading. This newsletter is now read by over 65,000 real estate investors, brokers, developers, and deal junkies. The CRE Daily keeps you informed on the top national, regional, and property sector news that matters to your business without all the BS. Give it a try by subscribing free at CREdaily.com. That's CREdaily.com. For anyone that tried buying a car over the last couple of years, it was not an easy thing to do. I just got a car uh, and had one of the best experiences I've ever had with Frank Kent Cadillac here in Fort Worth, Texas. When you think of Fort Worth businesses, it's hard to not think of Frank Kent Cadillac. Well, that's because they've been around for 87 years. And with history like that, they know a thing or two about how to treat their clients. Like no dealer markups over MSRP. The price on the sticker is the price you pay. So when you're in the market for a new vehicle, check them out. New inventory is arriving daily from the XT4, 5, and 6 to the CT4 and 5 Black Wings with CPO rates. There is always something in store at fkcadillac.com. That's fkcadillac.com. Frank Kent Cadillac, community-driven, locally different since 1935. David, welcome to the show today. 
Thank you for joining me. Thanks for having me, Chris. Our buddy Mitchell introduced us uh, a month ago, and I think it's mutual, but I have a crush on David. He's He has uh, opened my eyes <laughs> to the podcasting world, but he's also opened my eyes to just kind of what really good work looks like and uh, what putting everything you have into something looks like. And so I've never been more excited about my podcast than I have in the last month because of Talks with David. So I wanted to give you that shout out before we jumped in. The feeling is is mutual. <laughs> Thank you. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of fun on this podcast. We have a lot of fun in the text messages. <laughs> and the, the conversation we had the other day. I absolutely loved it. Yeah, that was good. We need to do more of that. In, uh, we need to do more of that, but I think we need to do like a podcast event uh, or some type of retreat in 2023 where we get a few podcasters together and go deep. You might actually, you and Mitchell have been uh, actually slowly convincing me that maybe I should consider moving to Texas. I love your tweets where it's just like, just very <laughs> subtle. It's like, this is Texas of ninth, you know, ninth largest GDP in the world or whatever it is. Like, this is how many jobs we have. Like, yeah. This is what housing is. It's like, we have a very business friendly environment here. Because <laughs> when we, we talked on the phone, we talked on the phone, you're like, you got to check, you got to check out the, the, the housing prices. Cause I was complaining about the housing costs in Miami, which are extreme because everybody moved here during COVID and you know, housing prices are up at least 50%. Um, and you're like, after we talked, you're like, Hey, you should just look in the Dallas Fort Worth area. Right. And I had, you know, I was anchored with the Miami prices for housing and it's difficult here because you guys have a ton of land. We're in between an ocean and a swamp. So it's very limited. So it's like, how, how, like how different could it possibly be? And I started showing my wife. I'm like, we could get a castle there. <laughs> <laughs> you can get castle land, some cows, yeah, cowboy hat. It's and just to have, you know, yeah, it, yeah. So I was like, oh, Chris was right. <laughs> <laughs> so before we get into the episode, um, I think it's important that we learn more about you and your story and where you came from. That's led to kind of what you're doing today, which. You know, I admire a lot, not only what you're doing, but the intentionality and the drive that you put behind it and kind of the, the I mean this in the best way possible, a little bit of the, the craziness that you put into it, which I think every founder has. But I think to understand that, you kind of have to understand where it all started. So let's just start with kind of your story growing up and, and what is built the foundation that is you today. I'm glad you, you actually said that. It's like there is a, a certain like... Uh... Our mutual friend, uh, our mutual friend Mitchell, says when he introduces me to other people, he says Dave is a maniac, and he means that as like a compliment. Um, part of that is just because I'm doing something where the, for the first time in my life, I think I found like the intersection of my interests. So my main interests are entrepreneurship, reading, history, and podcasts. I'm extremely passionate, like almost obsessed with all four of those. And if you think about those four different domains, like that's founders just sits in the middle. It's like a combination of all that. Um, and I'm not entirely sure. Uh, I understand why or that I can even answer the question other than like using what Jeff said, which was what Jeff Bezos said, which is you don't pick your passions, they pick you. And so you could go back and he says, listen, I was obsessed with space uh, and rockets since I was like five years old. Uh, he was a valedictorian of his high school. His high school speech is on, you know, building, taking the infrastructure from uh, for, uh, that we that we use in Earth and putting it into lower Earth orbit. Um, and it took him like founding Amazon to get the money to fund Blue Origin, but it's like, oh, he had this passion since he was five. He was obsessed with it throughout his entire childhood, but it took a few decades for him to actually have the means to 
pursue that passion. And that passion is, you know, a billionaire's passion, right? Like you and I are not trying to build businesses <laughs> in space. Um, but that's the way I think about reading and entrepreneurship. And I think a lot of this drive that you don't even understand yourself really, but you see it in other people, right? When I talked to you on, uh, when I, when me and you talked, you know, for an hour and a half the other day, and when you told me the story of like how, where your company came from and this idea, and like, you've been pursuing this started on a dorm room. And then 20 years later, you have this fabulously successful company that you're still pushing and still building. It's like, I told you, it was like that the, it's one, it's super impressive what you did, but it's super rare because humans quit at everything. And the fact that you've been working on this business for almost two decades, or maybe even more than two decades now, that's exactly what I see in these books. And so really up until this point, I was searching for something that I could do for the rest of my life. Because the people that I am, uh, what I call like my entrepreneurial heroes, like the people that I look up to and admire for what they did in their work, they found what they love to do. And usually it's a lot of, involved a lot of trial and error. And then once they found it, they did it until they died. And so that's what I hope Founders Podcast represents for me. Okay. Tell us a little bit about growing up and the things that you think formed this kind of craziness and obsession uh, that you built. I mean, I think because I think when we get later in this episode, we're going to find out that most founders can root a lot of who they are back to everybody, I think, on Earth can. But founders have these distinct things that often happen early in childhood that kind of express themselves later in life. I think I realized from an early age that I was in a fucked up situation and there's only one person that's getting me out of this and that's myself. Um, my parents did the best they could. Uh, they're both high school dropouts, never made a lot of money. My mom, unfortunately, passed away, you know, rather young from breast cancer. Um, she came from the worst family you could possibly imagine. Uh, I'll give you an insight into this. When somebody asked me, I think it was on a podcast, like, uh, what's my biggest regret? And without even thinking, and I probably shouldn't repeat it, but I'm going to say it again, is like, my biggest regret is I never got a chance to kill my grandfather because he was a fucking monster. And I, like, we don't have to go into detail there, but like what he did to not only his wife and his children is like one of the worst things you could possibly do to anybody. Like the worst person that I have ever met was him and he got away with it. That's what kills me. I didn't find out about this stuff till after he died. So knowing this and then having your own kids and then getting older, you kind of understand like why your parents made the decisions they did. And then even on my, my, uh, my dad's side, where it's just like his mom was just one of these negative, and you see this 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 personality type. It's just like super. Instead of like I build up my kids, right? I'm like you're the, you're amazing, you're sweet, you're smart, you could do whatever you want in the world. I loved. I just finished reading all of Paul Graham's essays, and his dad gave him the best advice I've ever heard. He's like, you could do whatever you want in life as long as you enjoy it. And he told Paul that when he was like 12. It's like yes, that's exactly. My dad had the exact opposite experience, where his mom was just unbelievably negative on both her children. And she did it to me too. Like my one memory of her, she died when I was 12, but my one memory of her was her telling me how stupid I am because my cousin who, no disrespect to her, but had a learning disability, her mom was on drugs and did cocaine while and drugs while she was pregnant, right? And so she gives birth to, unfortunately, you know, a child that was severely I don't know what the word is they use. They used to call it mentally retarded. I don't know what the, you know, the, the politically correct way to describe this, just to have some kind of, you know, disability. But my grandmother telling me that my cousin, that I'm stupid, I'm dumber than my cousin, 
who is, you know, some kind of disability because she speaks Spanish and I don't. And it's just like, I was like 10. Like who talks to 10 year olds like that? Like, what is wrong with you people? So long story short, it's just like, I see like, there's some things I don't understand what my parents did, but you know, my dad's still alive. I'm actually going to see him because his birthday soon. And like, you know, I don't, I don't hold grudges against him. He did the best he could considering where he came from. You know, he came, it's like generation after generation of no education, uh, no money, uh, you know, every single possible human deficiency from drug abuse to alcohol abuse to abandoning your children. Like I'm talking about generations of this shit. And so I, by pure luck, I was just, I had some kind of weird drive and ability and obsession with reading and learning and finding a way out of this. And um, part of that came from one of the best things I ever did was uh, I would go in, I started working full-time. I've been working full-time since I was 15 years old, okay? And one way I figured out how to do this is because I remember my dad sitting me down uh, when I was 15. He's like, listen, you don't have to pay rent here, but I can't give you like, I don't have any money to give you money. So if you want money, if you want a car, if you want, you know, the things that you want, you got to go and get get a job and work for him. And one thing I, I learned from my dad is he's a blue collar guy, but his work ethic is crazy. Like he, he will, work, you know, he does uh, like, they essentially move heavy equipment for like in the state of Florida, it's for like the power company and stuff like that. So there's sometimes where they have to work 70 straight hours. Like he's got that drive, but it's like a physical drive, not a store value from your work, no leverage no way to build wealth, right? Because he's just trading time for money. But one thing he he imbibed to me was like this crazy ass work ethic where we were talking right before we recorded. It's like, I'm trying to build the best podcast in the world on the history of entrepreneurship, right? I Podcasts are, are not zero sum. So it's not like we have direct competitors. You can listen to a bunch of podcasts, but I want to make it, I want people to see, it's like this guy puts a lot of his life energy into his work and what he's doing. So the idea of somebody's like, hey, I want to make a podcast on the history of entrepreneurship and compete directly with David. I want them to be like, I'd rather wrestle Grizzlies than compete <laughs> with this guy. And that, you know, like that, that's, that's a yeah. line from Warren Buffett shareholder letters talking about Rose Blumkin, who came here, she fled Europe, came to uh, Omaha, Nebraska with $500 and built Nebraska Furniture Mart, which she sold to him for 60 million. And he said that line, he goes, she, you look at it, she's 80 year old lady, but anybody's, no one's going to come to Omaha and be like, I want to open up a, a furniture, a furniture store and compete directly with her. Like he said, he's like, they'd rather wrestle with Grizzlies than compete with her. Um, and so my, my point being is like, I just think this combination of, hey, uh, no one's coming to save you. Reading, you can, it's, it's, it's theft. It's robbery. You could have somebody that spent their entire lives bumping their head against, how can I create a great business? Like it, take like Sam Walton, for example. If when you read Sam Walton's autobiography, right? He knows he is dying. He's got cancer. He knows he's dying. And yet he says, hey, I spent 50 years in building my company, right? This is everything I learned that's important. And you could read that in a week. And so I think the the the, the, the luckiest thing that ever happened to me is like, just, I didn't choose this, just having a insane obsession and passion for reading because you can literally profit off of somebody's entire life experience and take those ideas and apply them to your business. Did somebody get you interested in reading or was that your escape from the reality that was your childhood that you could escape into these books and and see this whole other life? Do you, or was it like a teacher or, or your parents or somebody gave you a book? Is there something that sparked that 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 reading um, obsession? So I'm going to try to answer your question to the best of my ability. There is some weird thing. So like I, I've been with my wife, uh, met her 
like she was my girlfriend, senior of college, now wife, been together for, I don't know, 15 years. To this day, she will hear me say something for the first time about like my younger life. She's, I never heard that story before. I don't think, I think they have like this weird thing where I block things out or I don't think about them. I don't know how to describe it. I don't remember anybody saying, hey, you should read, right? Um, there was not, it's not like my house was full of books. My mom read the Bible obsessively. Um, so that's the one, one thing where she would re, like read the Bible and reread it. Uh, but I don't remember, I don't remember any books in the house. My dad didn't read. So no, I, I can't think of, and there was no teacher and I did it really young. You know, I, I was reading from a very young age. Um, you know, I was probably like five or six. They knew it was kind of abnormal because my first grade teacher told my mom, she's like, you need to put this kid in gifted. Um, cause I was already, already reading obsessively by then. And, you know, I don't think anybody's sitting down and having like a logical conversation with a six-year-old. Yep. One, uh, one thing you just said about blocking things out. Um, I've done the same thing. I, I, I think for the first time in my life, the last couple of years has been the first time in my life. I've actually been interested in exploring the earlier part of my life. Cause I've always thought forward. So when I wake up every day, all I'm thinking about is tomorrow. I could yesterday's over. Whatever happened, happened. Um, and it's funny you say that because I've realized how neglectful I've been of my past and how the stories of my past have shaped today. And it's now becoming kind of a newer, not obsession, but uh, again, a lot of how we're wired is from how we grew up. And for some reason, you know, subconsciously, I've made a decision that I just wasn't interested in understanding how, you know, yesterday, all I wanted to know about was tomorrow. And so, I don't know, it resonated with me when you said you tend to block things out. I, I, yeah, and I don't think, like, it doesn't matter. Like, there's nothing you could do. You don't choose the environment you're put in. You don't choose who, like, like now you're an adult, you get to choose. And all I think about is, like, I don't care about any of that shit. Like, I'm glad I am who I am. I'm glad I have the traits I have. I think they're very well suited for the environment that, that I'm in, right? I am thankful to some decisions that were made in the past. Like, uh, my grandfather was... 38 years old, living, he was born in Cuba, didn't speak English, had no money. And yet he had some kind of, he realized, oh, wait, Castro just took over. We need to get the hell out of here. And like that one decision for him, he had a wife and a baby, which that baby was my dad. And, you know, to take that giant risk, imagine being 30 years old, have a wife and a baby, somebody, somebody invades America and you have to go to a country that you've never been to and you don't even speak the language and you have no money. Like that takes that takes courage, right? So the, I benefited from that because I could be the exact same person growing up in Cuba where they don't even barely have access to the internet. And, you know, my life is completely different. That has nothing to do with me. That's just pure luck that he that he took that courage and, and jumped to a new environment and had to build uh, an entire life over and over again. But I think at some point, it's like, boo-hoo, who cares? People have, there's terrible things. Most of, this is a conversation I, I just had. We have a mutual friend in uh, Sam Hinkie. I was talking to him about this, where it's like, most people don't have their shit together, right? And then most people have kids. And so there, this, this, these <laughs> more often than not, the experience is going to be not great. Yeah. And so my whole thing is like, how do I, I talk about this on the podcast, like what I'm obsessed with is you find these founders, I call them generational inflection points. Sam uses the term that they're founders of their family. So you could have multiple generations of poverty, abuse, whatever, and it takes one person. So I think of Sam Bronfman, who's the founder of Seagram's, this giant, you know, now family dynasty. They own media properties and distilleries and all kinds of crazy stuff. But Sam came from a family that was so poor growing up in Canada 
that they didn't even have like windows and they would almost freeze to death in like a cabin in the winter. And at some point, Sam just snapped. He's like, I'm changing the entire trajectory of my, we all have the same last name, but the Brofmans that came after Sam are nothing like the ones that came before him. And so that's why I use the word generational inflection points. Like you have all this shit that is running downhill. And one person says, nope, the li- that, that line stops here. I'm not going to do that. And to the point where, and then he had like this obsessive work ethic and building businesses and taking risks. So his, later on, his, his daughter's like 20 or 30 years old. They're living in like, she remembers Sam now in his mansion, wealthy old man sitting by the fire, shivering because he still remembers the embarrassment of going to school with holes, in, uh, his clothes in tatters. And so that drive, some people, you know, bad crap, bad things happen to them. They just, you know, that's the, well, I guess that's the world, what the world is. I think people like you, I've talked to you enough, people that listen to founders and to some degree, people like me, it's like, no, I can have my influence on the world. I can actually shape it. I can change it. I can build products to the other people. I can provide services. The best way to think about building a business is like what Henry Ford said, money comes naturally as a result of service. If you serve other people and you're able to buy, build services and products that other people value, they will give you money for that. And that transaction, the fact that we live in a market economy, we're able to do this, right? We have the freedom to constantly run these experiments. That changes everything because then you could take all the stuff that you're learning, uh, focus it on serving other humans, and then those humans reward you. And you can literally take that money and, and build your world. My kids will never, ever, ever experience the shit that like my parents did. Like, it's just not going to happen. Like, I don't care if I have to work seven days a week. I don't care if I do nothing but work and I don't have to. You know what I mean? Like founders is already like, that's an extreme statement. But my point is like, I'm just not willing to let that happen. And I think that story is not unique to me. It's in every single one of these biographies that I read for the podcast. It is in the thousands of messages I get every month about people saying, I know exactly what happened. This happened to me. This was motivating for me. I find the stories in your podcast comforting. And these are not like scrubs. These are not, these are extremely successful people. Everybody, to your point, everybody has this stuff in the past or everybody has like a discontent with some area of their life that they tend to channel into their work. And if you have an extreme personality, then the outcome of that channeling is going to be extreme. And I can bring this converse, I can bring this part of the conversation forward. I mean, I was going to get to it anyway, but when I think about my kids or you think about your kids or, or the great founders that we're going to talk about on this podcast, you think about their kids, like they aren't what you generally find, at least what I found is most of the founders that you've probably, uh, had on the, uh, talked about on the podcast, read about, or even the, just the story that you just told come from some sort of really tough upbringing or something happened early on. And the question I always ask myself is how do I, not that I want to recreate that there's things I've been through, but there's things because of my prosperity that my kids are not going to have to deal with. And I think the question is, do you think that kids that don't have to deal with that stuff have the grit and the DNA to actually go do something that your podcast might one day do an episode on? Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it's more common to have these these crazy external circumstances where you want to change. But I, I, yeah, I, there, I mean, and there's many examples. Like you can even look at like Mark Zuckerberg, Bill Gates, uh, Evan Spiegel. These, these grew up, they did not need to build and to put all their energy into what they built, right? But they, they did and you can. Um, I just think the reason that 
there's just way more people that have bad experiences than have good in general, right? Humans are a fatally flawed species. Like I, if you read even a cursory reading of history, you're like, we're crazy. We do, we make bad decisions over and over again. So as a byproduct of that, if you're an irrational person or you don't have your own crap together, like the idea that you're going to rate, you're going to build an environment for your children, that's going to be, you know, like you just described the one that you're trying to build for years, but you're so rare, Chris, like, you know, like nine, I'm not like 99% of the people that have ever lived that more than that, 99.99999% of people that have ever existed have not accomplished as much as you've already accomplished. And you feel like you're just getting started, you know, like you're still relatively young. It's unbelievably, this is also disorienting for me because of the people that I get to meet, um, through the podcast, you get so used to these people, like just the people talking to you, the people I've talked to this week, unbelievably like, and you, it, they still struggle with things. Like I was talking to a person yesterday that was like, Hey, I could sell my company for a hundred million dollars. Right. Like, and he's 28 years old. He like, he could sell his company for a hundred million dollars. And like, he, he just basically wanted somebody to help organize his thoughts. We've also become friends uh, over the last year, whatever the case is. And, you know, he's like, it's, it's kind of like bothering him. Uh, it's something he's thinking about a lot. I'm like, you've already won. Like, whether you sell the company or not, do you understand how rare that is? Like, and he's not one of these people who's like, oh, I, I, I could get a hundred million, but I want like two billion, which is very common, you know, like never having enough. But I was like, there is no bad decision for you here. Like you either keep building a business that you love and then maybe have help somebody, uh, you hire somebody to help you run it because you have some other passions you want to explore or you sell it for more money than you'll ever spend in your entire life. But like, this is not, you understand, this, these are not real problems. <laughs> like, I know it feels that way to you, but it's so outside of the normal, a normal purpose, every other human on the planet. Like how many people on the planet are struggling with that decision this week? Come on, a tiny, like a tiny percentage. So it can be disorienting. I, I want to go back to your question though, because I don't want to go too far off on this tangent. Um, no one, and yours just says like, you you grew up uh, like the you changed the environment for your kids. It's different than the environment you had. And what's interesting is how many times conversations like this come up in the books, where they say the same thing. They're like, I you know now, essentially like I was like I'm thinking of Charles Kettering, who was the version of like the 20th century Ben Franklin, right? Uh, he was inventor, a founder. He sold his company to GM. He winds up being the head of. Uh, General Motors research for like 20 years when they were like the mo maybe the most valuable company in the world, you know, uh, unbelievable. I mean, his nickname was the 20th century Ben Franklin. I should tell you everything you want. There's there's all these buildings named after this guy. And he talked about that. Uh, and he was talking to another founder in the book where he's like, we were the son sons of poor uh, of poor men. Now we're the fathers. Now our sons are the, the, the uh, sons of rich men. Like, how do we instill the drive or like, you know, how can we make sure they're, they're not spoiled or whatever you want to say? And the answer is there is no answer. It's uh, I don't know if you've ever heard of Mike Boyd and his podcast on generational families, but um, that's that's a lot of what you glean from it. Other than the, the one thing I took from that was there are families that will tell their kids you're entitled to this because you were born. And, and that's kind of the messaging that is given to them as they grow up. And then there is there are families that do better and make the messaging appear as if 
uh, you have something to steward. You are being gifted this, but you have to steward it to keep our family intact and keep it growing. And just that messaging from a young age of entitlement versus stewardship can tend to have a good uh, direction. Then again, like you said, you have four or five kids, the odds of having of all four or five kids doing great, it's just not possible. So you're the, the larger your family gets, the more risk it gets in kind of, you know, bringing um, the same values to the next generation. I like what Shaq, the former basketball player, said. He heard his son say, hey, we're rich. He goes, we? He's like, you're not rich. I'm rich. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, we nothing. I made this money. Um, that is an interesting discussion where I've read enough of these stories. Um, like even going back to like the Rothschilds or the Rockefellers or the Vanderbilts or the Morgans, the family dynasties. And I, you know, hopefully if I get to the point where there is like a substantial, you know, like you're not only your kids rich, but like your kids, kids are rich kind of thing. I don't know if I, I think like, I wonder what I would do in that situation. My, my, and you know, it's easy to make this decision now when you don't have to make it, but I think it would be give them enough where they're okay. But I don't think giving people an, an obscene amount of wealth um, kid, like people that didn't, I think you just kind of make them start, start, not start from scratch. Cause that's not, that's extreme, you know, make sure they're, they're never going to starve, but I don't think making people wealthy through no work of their own is, is actually, I haven't seen it turn out very well. Let's just put it that way. It may be fine for one or two generations, but you know, you're going to get down your grand, your great grandson doesn't remember who you are. Like you really want that that person have $50 million and he puts it up his nose or, you know, like they just do so many bad things. It's like, cause they never had the discipline. The kind of person that could build that wealth has discipline and control of their self for, for most part. Right. But like, if you gifted a 25 year old, you know, or 30 year old, $50 million that never had to work a day in their life, like, how is that going to be a good outcome? I agree. I think you're also robbing them of a life where they could do something. I mean, it's, it's both ways. Um, you think you're doing something great, but in a way you're stealing uh, that part of life away from somebody that they might've had. So you run this podcast, we've talked about kind of the growing up, what kind of led to starting the podcast? Were you already reading lots of books on or uh, autobiographies? Like, let's just kind of get started on how the podcast got going. And then we're going to talk about podcasting in general. So I was, uh, this is interesting because I just did this episode on Paul Graham and I start the episode because I was reading um, Paul Graham's essay, How to Do What You Love. This is back in 2018, and I completely snapped. It was late at night, and I was like, I had already, I started Founders Podcast in 2016, right? Just for fun. I was obsessed with the medium of podcasting. Uh, way before there's such a thing as podcasts, I was just obsessed with, with audio. Like, I love talk radio. I would, like, stream shows. Uh, you know, there was no on-demand element of it. Uh, you know, I still grew up listening to it, like, on the radio, like, actual FM and a or AM dial. And then the internet comes out and then eventually you can kind of like stream it, but you have to be there live. And then podcasting came out. I was like, oh my God, like anybody can make their, it's like you have your own radio show in your pocket. You can listen, you can talk about whatever you want. You don't need any permission to do anything and people can listen to it whenever they want. Like I just thought it was, the, the, I still think it's we're at the very beginning of this giant technological revolution, right? Um, but I had just done them. I've always read. Yeah. So that never stopped. But I, uh, I found this podcast, uh, called Jocko podcast, which is now, you know, this is back in 2015. If anytime you go to like the business charts, Jocko just dominates. He's always up there. He's probably got millions and millions and millions of listeners. 
And what he would do is he would do, it's a podcast on business leadership using stories from the military because he's an ex-Navy SEAL. Um, and so he would read first-person accounts of usually like, you know, people in war. Sometimes they're generals, sometimes they're people leading teams. And he would draw out leadership lessons that you could use in your business. And I, I found his podcast. And so essentially, he, it was just him. He has a co-host, but the co-host, name, his name's Echo, really doesn't talk that much, especially in the, the early episodes. And so it was just him for like an hour, hour and a half going through and like reading passages from the book that he liked and telling you what he learned from it. And I was like, this is the best format I've ever seen. The, uh, I wound up ordering, you know, probably a dozen books off these episodes the, the, and even the episodes where I didn't wind up, reading, wind up reading the book. I was just learning so much. I'm like, somebody should do this. But instead of like autobiographies of, of people that serve in the military, should do like biographies of great people. And so I started reading like Ben Franklin and Nelson Mandela and all these other, Abraham Lincoln, all these other people. And then some of Steve Jobs and other people like that. And then I was like, oh, I should actually narrow the focus because like I'm super interested in entrepreneurship. Uh, I'm completely unhireable and unmanageable. So <laughs> like I only have one path in life. Like I'd be like, you know, the I remember getting fired. I had I worked at a car wash in high school for three years and three days. And I got fired, uh, not because I was bad, but because the manager who I thought I was better, like I was better at my job of, I had more clients because you know clients keep you have repeat customers i thought i was better at actually detailing cars and had more customers trying to tell me what to do and i used non-polite language to tell him to do something to himself <laughs> so and i came in the next day to like david you can't say that like we have to fire you <laughs> so anyways um i was like hey we should i should narrow, somebody should narrow this focus right and then just read biographies of entrepreneurs because jock was reading biographies and autobiographies of you know people in all kinds of throughout history and that that's that, uh, engaged in combat. And I started doing that. And I think I, intermittently, like just randomly, uh, but I'd start uploading them. I had no idea that I, how to turn it into business. No idea. Like I, I didn't have any social media presence. I didn't have guests where they could then help grow the show by making their announcement that, Hey, I was on the show, all this other stuff, which I saw like how Joe Rogan grew his show and then eventually using clips and everything else. But, um, I was getting like weird messages and like weird reviews. Like some people were writing like 2000 word reviews of the show and like how much they liked it. And it, my early answers were terrible. Like I didn't know then, like, you know, you can't think you're going to do th something 15 times, 16 times, 30 times and be good at it. Like that's absurd. I remember when I got to episode 30, I'm like, by the time I get to episode 30, this show is going to be huge. <laughs> and it wasn't because <laughs> podcasts take forever to grow. Yep. But once they grow, they're really sticky and they compound and, and they, they, they draw the right people into your world because like you're, you're, you're drawing in lifetime learners. So anyways, I was running this company. It's called RoboDB. I had figured out a, uh, a way to, um, at the time, uh, to identify. And there was all these, um, there was all these like competitions that like, uh, the FTC and other, and other, uh, like Twilio, the, the actual provider was running to try to find a way to block robocalls. And I was building, right before that, I was building uh, chatbot apps. And so that's why I was using Twilio. And I saw this, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. So anyways, I had built this, this product that was able, I realized like there's no technical solution to this. Um, not, not At least not any technical solution that I could build. And I was like, what's a way to actually solve the problem? I was like, oh, you could actually build uh, track them through the payment network is essentially the idea I had. So I had at one point like thousands of numbers and I would track the true ownership of Robo who was originating these calls through the uh, payment network. Um, and then you could sell that data to like 
attorneys that were doing like class action lawsuits and all this other stuff. But anyways, it was a a super automated business that generated a good living in the sense of uh, like money, but one that I knew I didn't really give a shit about. And I knew this because when I wasn't working, I didn't think about it. And that's a bad sign. That's a sign that you're doing it for money. And so anyways, the, all this, I was having these thoughts where it's just like, okay, well, like I, it provides maybe a, com- a comfortable lifestyle, but like, I'm not passionate about it. I don't think about it. And then I'm reading Paul Graham's essays and his whole thing is just like, in that essay, he goes, out of billions of people that have ever existed, how many people actually figured out a way to do what they love? And he says, a couple hundred thousand at best. And then he goes into why you're not doing that and how it is a waste of your life if you don't, because you're, especially for a personality type like you and I, like you're going to spend a large part of the time that you are not asleep thinking about your business or thinking about your work. You have to, to for us to live contented lives, we have to be good at what we do. And Paul's point is like, it's way easier to be good at what you do if you're naturally drawn to it. And if you like doing it, then no one has, like, you don't even need discipline because you just have to do it all the time. And so I remember reading this and then he talks about like, you're not doing this because you're getting pulled away by things that you think are more important. And he said, one of those was money. The other one was prestige. Like, he's like, if you're not chasing money, then you're probably chasing status. But he goes, the happiest people in the world are not the people that have the most money you know, then you'd have the Forbes 400 wouldn't be the Forbes 400 richest people. It'd be the Forbes, uh, it'd be the 400 happiest people. And we know that's not true. And so he goes, it's not the people that have financial freedom that are happiest. The people that are happiest are the people that do what they love. And doing what you love is very hard to figure out how to do. And you know, it's hard to do because out of billions, only a few hundred thousand people figure out how to do this. So his writing is extremely influential. I remember sitting up, my wife was asleep, my daughter was asleep, and I just snapped. And I was like, I've always been like, uh, like I save a lot of money, always had like giant runway, you know, you know how a company, this is more like a startup. I mean, startups know this because it's like they divide what's how much money they have in the bank by what their costs are. They, that's their runway. Right. I always did this personally because, again, I didn't have like there was no back like no one could bail me out if I, if I messed that up. It's always had like a long runway. But I realized it's like I starting tomorrow, when I wake up, I'm not going to work on anything else but the podcast. I don't know how I can turn this into a business. All I know is like, I believe in myself. So if I work on something seven days a week, I'm willing to spend my last dollar. Like my runway is if I get to my last dollar and the podcast is still not a business, then I have to go get a job or I have to figure something out. But like, I'm going to die at one point uh, Jeff Bezos actually helped me think about this too, because in the book, the everything store, which is one of the first episodes I did, he is, you know, super smart, uh, working at a hedge fund for a billionaire. Jeff is 30 years old. He's got this beautiful apartment in Manhattan, making a ton of money, uh, working for, uh, DE Shaw. And he gets this weird idea. He's like, I feel the internet is going to be really important. Um, I'm going to quit my job, move across the country and start a, the books, a bookstore on the internet. He also knew that books was just the one thing because in, he was doing the research for what turned into be Amazon internally in the hedge fund and they called it the everything store. So they knew that like he knew it was going to be bigger than a bookstore. But when you tell, you know, people, it's a storytelling. So anyways, he goes, his billionaire boss is like, man, you got a really good job. You're really smart. Don't quit yet. Come take a walk. So they do a walk. They have like an entire afternoon walking in such a park. 
And then he goes home and he's like, I'll sleep on it. And then how he made the decision, he's like, listen, uh, I'm going to get a big fat bonus, my quarterly bonus very soon. Um, I'm going to quit anyways, because he, what he did realize is like, if when I'm 80 years old, looking back on my life, I'm not going to remember a quarterly bonus of when I'm 30. But what I am going to remember is that I had this opportunity to play a role at the very beginning of an industry that I think is important. And I didn't do it because I was worried about a quarterly bonus. That means I'm making the wrong decision. And so he calls this regret minimization framework. And he goes, I make all my decisions based on will my 80 year old self regret it? Because at the time, things that are inconsequential can see, can seem extremely important. Like if you, what if it's like 250 grand, $500,000 for a 30 year old, like, you know, this is back in the eighties, like that's a lot of money, but it's not a lot of money compared to what you're going to make over your lifetime and that you actually love and can put your full energy into something that you own yourself. Um, and so that idea was in my mind. I'm reading Paul Graham's essay and I'm like, I love podcasts. I'm obsessed with it. I'll work seven days a week on it. I genuinely believe that this is life-changing technology. I call it the printing press for the spoken word. Um, and if I get down to my last dollar, which would hopefully take me a few years to do, I'll get a job and then I'll work on the podcast at night. And so that's what I did. And there's a line um, that I just I just covered uh, Henry Ford's autobiography for the second time. And one line, you never know when you put out a podcast what resonates, but people always throw lines back at you and it's usually the same line. And I guess I said something about what Henry Ford, when he was building a Ford Motor Company, he worked all day. At, he was working for, I think, uh, Edison, the Edison Electrical Company as an engineer. He'd work all day. And then at night, he'd work on what eventually turned into one of the, the first manifestations of the Ford Motor Company. He'd be working on an engine. And then so he worked nights and weekends on his business. And so he jumped and took that risk. And I said, usually, like, none of this stuff work is going to work if you, if you won't bet on yourself. And usually when you need to bet on yourself, you're not in the best position to bet on yourself. And that's why it's so difficult. And so I was like, listen, if I'm by myself, I don't give a shit. I got a wife and a kid to support. This is a cr kind of weird, crazy decision, but I'll, I, I, I'll figure it out. I know I'll figure it out. And I did that. And you see it in the uploads schedule of founders because ever since then, I haven't missed a week, one single week in four years. Um, and it took just under two years for founders to be profitable enough profitable enough so that it pays all my bills. Um, and I didn't have to keep digging into my savings. And then that happened two years ago. And then since then it just, and specifically in the last few months, it's just took off like a rocket. But again, how many people are willing to, people are like, Oh, you know, you know how you, uh, you love to do something like what you do for free. And I'm like, uh, I paid to do it. How about that? <laughs> I, I paid to do this. That's how much I love it. I was like, and it, like, that's what it goes back to, like making it difficult to compete with you or just like, if you want to do a podcast, you're kind of into it, that's fine. And, and most people, you know, might be multitasking or whatever. It's like, I'm really into this <laughs> and I'm going to show you that I'm really into it. And then hopefully, you know, if I, as long as I don't make any mistakes and let it compound, then, you know, as long as I do what I'm supposed to do, it'll, I'll just let the score take care of itself. It'll give me everything I want out of life because in some degree I've already won that I figured out what I want to do and I'm able to do it. And then you can figure out how to make money later on. What in the first two years kept the momentum going? And was there ever a point in the first two years where you looked at yourself in the mirror and you're like, what am I doing? Like, did I make the right 
you know, again, you're building a podcast. Not a lot of people are listening yet. You're fine tuning your craft. You know, it's what you want to do, but I'm sure there's those moments in the first two years where there's a things that are just, you're getting more excited about, but then B, maybe you're waking up some days going, you know, am I crazy? Is this the right thing? Or has it always been a, you've never doubted it? Okay. So to answer your question, yeah. And anytime you're doing something, it's like there's periods of pain. So uh, Mark Andreessen has this greatest, the greatest way to describe this. And he says, listen, when you're building a company, uh, he goes, there's, you only ever feel two emotions. And people are actually surprised by that when they haven't uh, done it. And he says, it's euphoria and terror. And you usually feel those, like you can sometimes feel them in the same day where you're like, you know, you feel on the top of the world. And the next time you're like, we're going to go out of business. I'm going to have to tell my family I have a failure. This is also in Paul Graham's essays too. So like you see this over and over again. It's just like, it's almost, there's almost like a bipolarness to entrepreneurship that you see. It's like, it'll give you the greatest feeling you've ever felt in the world because it's so difficult to do. And yet it will also, there's like, you either have tens or ones where I think most people in normal life, they have like fours and sixes. So it's like, they're scared. They're so scared. They're so scared of the ones that they never get to the tens, right? Where entrepreneurs like, no, I want the 10 and I'll deal with the one. So it, I couldn't believe at every time, every point along the way, I was like, this is, I told you, it's like, by the time I get to episode 30, I'm going to be great. <laughs> I remember like, and I was doing a subscription <laughs> podcast. I remember saying, okay, I bet you like, I'll probably get like a thousand subscribers, paying subscribers every month. And it's just like, that's not how it worked out at all. Um, but there is a benefit where we talked about earlier, like uh, when you block some certain things out, uh, I think I've always had an excessive amount of self-confidence. Um, and I don't, and I think partially that comes early in life because I've, I've been like that since forever as a way to like everybody, like you have your grandparents, not really my parents. I think my parents like thought I could do anything. They thought I was like some, you know, but like, they don't know that much, but like, I remember my grandparents telling me like, and my aunts, some aunts and uncles like, like, you know, to some degree, like you're stupid or like something's wrong with you. And I, my whole thing is like, no, I'm pretty sure like I'm better than all of you combined. And like I had that, like, you know what I mean? Like, but it's like, it's a, I'm going to read this lyric that I think about and it's actually Kanye West. And, you know, I hate even to bring him up now because everything's going on. But like, if you study what he did in his early career, this is from his first album. It's there's a, there's a great documentary on Netflix called genius or Jesus, or it's about Kanye, just type in Kanye. The first two episodes, it's it's the founder's journey. It's the same journey that's in the books that I read. You can skip the third episode, but it's like Kanye has no money. No one knows who he is. Like, how does he break in? And that's what the first two episodes are. And he had the the wherewithal to, to hire a, uh, a, a, a cameraman to follow him around to document this. He was so confident. He's like, I don't know, have any money. No one knows who I am. I'm going to figure this out and I'm going to document this. And like 30, 20 years later, like we get to watch. It. It's pretty crazy. But what I think helps is like Arnold Schwarzenegger says in his, he's got two autobiographies that are fantastic. I covered the podcast. He's like, listen, you can't have, he's like, I don't, I'm not a big fan of plan B. Jeff Bezos said the same thing. He goes, plan B should be to make plan A work. That's a fantastic quote from Jeff. So Arnold's like, the reason that I don't believe in plan B, he's like, cause this is already, what you're doing is already hard enough that if a plan B means that you doubt yourself. And when you start doubting yourself, that's very dangerous. So there were a ton of times where I'm like, this is going to take longer. But I knew like, I just trust, I had an 
an abundance of self-confidence is like, I'll figure it out. And so there's a line that I thought about all the time. And it's this idea that you can use confidence or arrogance as fuel to not quit when everybody else would have quit. And so this go this can go into our podcasting discussion too, because everybody's like, oh, you can't start a podcast. It's too late. There's 3 million podcasts. And then you look, well, how many podcasts uh, are still updating on a regular basis, have more than 10 episodes and have released at least one new episode in the last 30 days? And it's like 150,000 or 180,000. And I'm like, do you know, like imagine you can go back and start a website when there's only 150,000 of them. And then you also are psychotic and completely obsessed with it and not re- and absolutely refuse to quit. It's just like, there's no fucking way like I'm going to lose at this. So Connie goes, he goes, some say he's arrogant. Can you blame him? It was straight embarrassing how you played him. He's talking about himself. Last year, shopping my demo because everybody thought about him as a producer. He starts producing for Jay-Z and all these other people. But he's like, I'm only making beats so I could rap on them. This is my, he found out his, his, he like flanked his way into the industry is the way you could think about this from a, from a, like a business strategy perspective. He's like, well, everybody's trying to be a rapper. Uh, well, I'll make beats, right? So then I can rap on the beats, but then I could sell, like that's his backup plan, or not his backup plan, but like his, his, his floor. He's like, I make so much money selling beats that then I can now not worry about paying my bills and I can rap and practice till I'm good enough and then I'll get signed, right? But then he's going around and everybody's like, he's trying to meet with all these companies and like, no, you're not good enough. You can't do this. We're not going to sign you, right? It's the same exact thing that happened to Jeff Bezos. Jeff Bezos talks about, it took him, I think, 50 meetings with investors to raise his first million dollars for Amazon. Imagine if you put in the first million dollars to Amazon. <laughs> we'd be we'd be do, recording this podcast on your yacht in the Mediterranean, okay? <laughs> like, and he goes, he goes, it took 50, it took 50 um, meetings. The most common question I got in those meetings was, what is the internet? Okay, so you have the exact same thing happening in Kanye's life where he's like, some say he's arrogant, can you blame him? It was straight embarrassing how you played him. He's talking about himself. Last year, shopping my demo, I was trying to shine. Every motherfucker told me that I couldn't rhyme. Separate whatever you think about Kanye, like the stuff he does. Yeah, he's one of the greatest, like he created some of the greatest pieces in hip hop history, right? Yet the same person that did that, the same person that won Grammys and, and created some of the best albums that the world has ever seen in this industry. You have people that don't know how to do what he's doing, telling him he can't do what he's doing. That happens in the history of entrepreneurship all the time. My greatest example, Sam Walton learned retailing. He worked for JCPenney, right? He worked for JCPenney when the founder of JCPenney was still alive. He worked for a manager of JC, but Sam's manager at JCPenney, right? Came up to Sam because Sam was making all mistakes. He's, you know, young. He's probably 19, 20 years old, however, maybe 25. And he goes, Sam, I hate to tell you this, but you're just not cut out for retail. You just told literally the greatest retailer that ever lived that he's not cut out at retail. So there's a there's a segment I, I talk about on the podcast all the time that critics don't know shit. And it's a, like a, it's, you know, cheeky way to say, hey, it doesn't matter if you're good at your job or if you're bad at your job, you're going to get criticized either way. And a lot of the people that tell you that you can't do something or you're not good at it can't even do it themselves. And most people know so little about the world around them. You should just ignore these people. It only matters what you believe. So go back to Kanye. He says, last year, shot my demo. I was trying to shine. Every motherfucker told me that I couldn't rhyme. Now I could let these dream killers kill my self-esteem or use my arrogance as esteem to power my dreams. I use it as my gas. And they say that I'm gassed, but without it, I'd be last. So I ought to laugh. His whole point is like, everybody is telling me, no, I'm using this. And in, and in some cases, like 
excessive amounts of externally uh, of self-confidence that, that that is external is usually covering up some kind of like weird insecurity or like you're kind of having an internal battle. Like I told my brother the other day, it's like, I'm supposed to be a loser. Like that is my fucking destiny. Like that, is, that look up and down the family trees. That is what I am supposed to be. So that is, so to fight against that inertia and where, what my destiny was supposed to be as seen from up and down both sides of our family tree, generation after generation, it's like, I have to fight against that. And so that's why, I'm, you know, I, I try to push the limits. I try to work on as much as possible. I try to like, just put a lot of energy into it because I'm fighting against like my destiny is not supposed to be this. And so if I take my foot off the gas or if I stop working or if I stop reading or just stop doing any of the things that got me to where I am so far, it's like, I'll just revert to the mean. It's like the reversion to the mean is loser. And I'm not willing to do that. And so I do think there was an element of, I don't know how to do this, I, like, but I'm just going to have this crazy self-belief and I'm not going to let anything get in my mind where it's like, David, you can't, like negative self-talk talk is normal in the sense that there's a lot of driven people that don't like things about their lives and that's why they're so driven to fix them. But you can't, it can't ever get to the point where it's like listening to that inner monologue that happens where it's like, oh, you're not good enough. You're not smart enough. You fight. I'm like, stop. Like, yes, I am. Yes, I will figure this out. I am not like the results are not where I want them to be, but I will persevere and I will solve the problem and I'll get there. So hopefully that answers your question. I think one of the biggest things I've learned over the last couple of years is it's hard to treat other you. you we treat others how we treat ourselves. And so when I think of critics, um, critics are often telling people don't take a risk. You can't do it. All those things because they themselves don't take risks and can't and have no self-belief. You said at the beginning of the episode how you pump up your kids. Well, that's just a direct flow of you pumping up yourself. And so a lot of me kind of reconciling with the world around me over the last few years, whether it's the expectations I put on those around me, how I pump people up. I mean, if somebody brings me a business idea, I'll always err on the side of like, you should go do that. You, it might not be what you think it is, but you should go do that. 99% of the world would tell them like, no, not a good idea or like work harder, or like rewrite your business plan. That's an expression of how they do everything internally, which is I'm not good enough. I don't have what it takes. And so I think part of the gift that you have and that we have is that naturally we don't lack self-confidence. Now, how we, how we exude that to the world is up to us. You, I think you can have a lot of self-confidence and be humble, or you can be lots of self-confidence and be a total it, asshole. It's smarter. Sam, Sam Walton said something great. He's like, listen, you know, this is executive teams. He's building one of the most valuable companies in the world. Uh, they're generating, you know, billions and billions of dollars uh, of wealth. He's like, of course, you can have an ego if you want to work. Like, you you can have an ego and you should have an ego if you work here. You just hide it. Like, that's the biggest thing. It's like, all the stuff I'm talking about is, like, internal. Because the, the Paul Graham talks about this in a lot of his essays where, especially in, like, startups, like, he's heavily focused on technology startups, right? Um, where it's like, you have, it's a binary outcome in most cases. It's like, if you can hold on long enough to succeed, you get rich. And if you don't, like you get nothing, like you're either going to do really well or nothing. It's not like you're not going to generate like a middle-class job doing a startup. Right. And so his whole point is like, if the, if the outcome are binary, what does that tell you that it's, and so few people achieve success. It's like, it's difficult to hold on. And so I think what Kanye picks up on Steve jobs had, you know, this in, in spades, it's the, 
use your drive as fuel. Don't go around. I mean, he and he does this now where he just goes around like, I'm a billionaire. This is like, okay, don't do that. <laughs> like, but take the good aspect of what he did, where it's just like, okay, I'm not going to listen to the outside world that tells me that I can't do something. The only person that knows if you can do something or how you think about it is like you. So just do, go and do it. And I talked to a lot of people from the podcast where I was like, listen, if you don't have this level of confidence, uh, act like, pretend it, pretend you do. Just like, act like, what, think about like the most confident person you know and ask what would they do in this situation and then go do that. Like no one knows if you have the confidence or not, only you do, and you could just pretend. And maybe you only have to pretend for a short period of time to actually get you to start or to not quit and just keep going down the path. Um, but I do think this, and, I, and um, Paul talks about this in his essays too. This is just on my mind because I spent the last like three weeks reading them and I'm doing another part series this weekend on them. But he makes the point where he's not sure how much of drive, he just thinks a lot of your drive is just, you're born with it. He doesn't think you could take, like no one has to tell you, no one had to tell you, uh, Chris sitting in your dorm room, there wasn't somebody standing over you. It's like, go start your company. Get up. What are you doing today? It's just like, no, I motivate myself. I started the company because I want to do it. And then you keep going on that. And that's where it's dangerous where people are like, uh, you know, can you convince somebody to do something? I, I'm very skeptical of that. I think it, I think all of this is internal. I can't shake it. I mean, I've got, I've, I understand it and I, there's ways of channeling it and dealing with it now, but I, I've, I've woken up every day of my adult life since I can remember and felt like I was behind on something. I don't sometimes even know what it is, but I'll just go do something just to get something done. And I, this constant feeling of, uh, being behind. And, and even when the big victories come, the metaphorical victories, they don't really last that long. Like they last about a couple minutes in my head. And then it's like, well, that was supposed to happen. Everything that's happened was always supposed to happen. And so I've been very rarely surprised by anything that's kind of come down the pipeline, um, which, you know, again, I don't know if that's good or bad, but I think it's something that founders share is this constant idea that like, I got to get something done and it's not coming from anybody except from within. That personality type exists today. It exists. It will exist 500 years from now and it existed for thousands of years ago. That's what's so comforting of and why, even if you don't listen to founders, whatever, that's fine. Read, go find biographies of people you admire and read about them. And you're going to be shocked at how similar their experiences and the way they think about things and what they had to go through is to you. It's just for this personality type, what you just said, which is also why like uh, the conversation I was having with my friend yesterday, he was just like, even if I sell my company for $100 million, he's like, I know I have to do something. He's like, I'm not gonna take $100 million and sit on a beach. I'm not interested in that. I have to make things. I have to build build products, build organizations. And that's why I was like, well, you like the business you have. So like, it's what Mark, uh, it was a funny thing <laughs> that happened where um, Yahoo tries to buy Facebook real early for like a billion dollars. And Mark comes into the board meeting. He's like, listen, we have to do this as a formality, but obviously we're not going to take this deal. And Peter Thiel, who had put like 500, the first 500 grand into, um, into Facebook tells a story where he's like, okay, well, like maybe we should talk about it a little bit. Like he goes, if we sell, I think Mark owned 25% of the company. He's like, you get $250 million and you're like 22 or 23. And Mark goes, first of all, he goes, they're grossly undervaluing Facebook because they don't know all the products that we're going to build in the future that are going to vastly increase the amount that Facebook's work worth. But even apart from that, 
I, what would I do with two? He, like, I get $250 million. What would I do? And he goes, I would just go and start another social network. And I like the social network I have. This is something. So I was listening to your podcast. And this is something I've been using probably a dozen times since I heard this. It was, um, I think Garden City is the company he was building. And he tells that great story. I think he said he was like flying back on a jet or something with his friend, right? And his friend had a business that was making $10 million a year. Like that he, he was making 10 million from his business, right? And he sold it for 60 million, right? He got this big lump of money. And then a few years later, now that business is making 25 million a year, right? And his friend's like, I may have made a mistake here because <laughs> he's like, I had a business. I had like inside information on it. It obviously like grew from 10 million to 25 million in profit, right? He goes, then I got a lump sum of 60 million, but then I got to do something with the money. And I could have just put in a business that I know really well. <laughs> but like that, like that, like basic, you know, the few minute conversation, there's a lot of, uh, I think, knowledge in that just understanding. It's like, what well, we're terrible at predicting what we think we want. Like, I, I love making 10 million a year, but I'd like to have 60 million right now. And then I get 60 million. It's like, mm, mm. I should have kept a 10 million a year. Yeah. <laughs> Because again, you're a personality type. Like you could sell your company for a ton of money, as you already know. Like, but what are you going to do tomorrow? You're just going to build another company. <laughs> you're not going to sit in bed watching TV, watching Netflix and eating cookies all day. You might do that for a week or go to the beach or do something. You're a builder. You have to build. We are compelled to do it. We don't even have control over it. Well, and you and you going back to look at what people do, the people that want to retire and go sit on a beach and never show up at work again. Uh, again, they're not, they're probably not ambitious. Maybe they've never been able to do something they love. So they're just ready to get done. But there's a, there's a reason why I've, I've never met a founder that I admire a ton that has ever once told me, I cannot wait to be sitting on a beach the rest of my life. It's, it would be, that would, that would be everything they're not against, like it's a bad thing to do that, but I I've never met anybody that loves what they do that has ever even remotely told me that's their dream later in life. The personality, the people that say that are not like, they're not founder types, which is fine. Most people are not. They might have a job where they, yeah, if you, if you hate what you do, you wake up every day, hating what you do, of course, sitting on a beach is going to be better. Like, of course it is. But what people see is like, yeah, building a company is hard, Right. George Lucas, um, the, the you know, obviously the director, sold his company for billions of dollars to to Disney. He had this good point where he's just like, he goes, making movies is so painful. I hate making movies, but it's like climbing a mountain. He's like, I hate it, but I love it. He goes, it's like climbing a mountain. It's really difficult while you do it. And every time, every step up the mountain, you're like, oh, I, I don't want to quit. I don't want to do this. But then you get to the top, like in his case, successful completion of a new project or a deal or whatever in our case, right? And you're like, oh, so glad I did that. But while you're doing it, there is parts of pain that people don't understand. And sometimes that pain is so great and you cannot withstand it that you make a decision you're going to regret later in life. So I think of Trader Joe's. Uh, his The founder is like Joe Colombo. I don't know how to pronounce his last name, but he published his autobiography. I did an episode on it. It's fascinating. He was like 85 or 90 when he wrote his autobiography, right? He published it and the next week he died or maybe the next month. But and he was going through a really tough time with Trader Joe's. He loved Trader Joe's. He put his whole life into it. But in a time of pain and great economic uncertainty, which I think was happening in the 1970s, he got an offer for his business. And he took the offer. And he's like, that's fine. I'll take the money, but I get to work here. 
I'm going to work at Trader Joe's my rest of my life. Well, you don't own it anymore. Now you're reporting to somebody. He winds up having a falling out with that person and leaving Trader Joe's. So 90% of the book is, this is what I did with Trader Joe's. This is how much I love it. Then like the last few pages, it's, uh, you know, I took the money. Uh, I, I worked as a consultant and I, and as an investor, here's some things I did. Like the, the passion he talked about Trader Joe's was the complete opposite. It was like talked about consulting or investing. It's like, yeah, I did this. It's great. And then he ends the, the he ends the, uh, he ends the book. Actually, I'm going to pull up the highlight if you don't mind, because I, to me, he did one of the best services to future generations of entrepreneurs in that, like, you're not, humans are notoriously bad at predicting what we think we're going to want. And he's like, the pain was so much that I gave up. And he goes, uh, he goes, this is the, the, la the, the last paragraph of a fantastic autobiography, right? And think about it. He's writing this, publishes it, dies. He says, but do I regret having sold? Yes, I have to admit it. And the, the heartbreaking thing is this is happening, you know, probably 30 or 40 years after he sold. But do I regret having sold? Yes, I admit it. To my own self, I was not true when I sold. I regret not having had the guts to write out the loss of this tax thing that was happening in the 70s, the employee ownership problem, the threat of death taxes, and Jimmy Carter's threat to eliminate capital gains preference, and all the other fears, real or phantom, of late 1978. This is the part that kills me. I have to admit the truth that I regret having sold Trader Joe's and I've had to pay something for this beyond the loss of my shadow. Thanks for listening, Joe. So that to me is like entrepreneurs are gonna pick up that book and the, 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 the heuristic I have for this is to like, just never sell your best idea. Like in many cases, finding what you're truly meant to do, it's very rare for you, like what you did, where usually, almost all the cases, you have to start multiple companies to actually find what you want to do. You know, Henry Ford, he started two or three car companies before he figured it out. Steve Jobs had 13 years where he was lost in the wilderness before he came back to Apple, right? He started Apple. He started, uh, uh, helped found, co-refound Pixar. Uh, next, like, and then go back to Apple and realize, oh, this is what I was meant to be doing. So it's extremely rare to find out what you want to do at such a young age and then keep doing that. Um, but once you do find it, I'd be very hesitant to give that to somebody else because you're going to think that you want the money or you want the freedom. Most likely you just want a break and you could do like, you could take a vacation for a month. You could hire somebody to help run the company. There's other ways to do this than foreclosing on all the future optionality and giving away your best idea. It's so good. Businesses are so rare. And once you felt like this, is what I told my friend that, about the hundred million dollar thing. So if you are, I told him the line, you've already won. You've already won. Now, just to take Charlie Munger's advice, like, don't fuck it up. <laughs> like, and it's so hard not to do that. We talked about the first two years, then two years, you kind of started making profit and, and it, you know, you never lost belief in it. But I think it would be good for the audience. And selfishly, I want to hear a little bit more, even though you've kind of let me in a little bit. What is a, a week? in the life of David look like? What does preparing, I think some people might think, you know, maybe you read a book over a month and then you record one and maybe you take a couple notes, but it is nothing like that. What does a week look like as the days go by between reading a book, taking notes, getting the episode recorded, all the things that go into this hour and a half blessing that you give your audience uh, once a week? It's, it's good that you're asking this question now. Because um, 
because of my partnership with Patrick from Invest Like the Best, he like shot me out of a cannon. And that happened, I think, I think that episode came out like end of August. We're recording this early November. I am dying. <laughs> like, I, I am redlining life right now where this is not sustainable. So this is normally my life is really sustainable because I love what I do and I do it every day. And I kind of like balance, you know, I balance my work, taking care of my health, spending time with my family and friends, you know. Um, right now, there's so much opportunity that I have. And I'm also putting a lot of pressure on myself uh, on the uh, recording enough podcasts. Like right now, like when you see an episode coming out, that episode was finished that day. <laughs> like, that's not good. What if I get sick? I gotta, I'm gonna, the next few months is like, I'm really pushing to at least have like, at least like a one or two week buffer there. God forbid, you know, anything ever happens. So with that said, um, I put it, in my opinion, um, I think I do more research and preparation than any other podcast in the world that is released on a weekly basis. Because for every, before I sit down to record and talk directly to the listener, I have to read an entire book. And I release a podcast every week. Last week, I released two podcasts. Um, so in the last eight days, I've released three podcasts. That's three full books that you have to read. Um, the actual process is pretty simple. It's like, there is a limit to how much you can read every day. So um, I usually wake up, work out, then I read. Um, today, I didn't do that because we're recording first thing in the morning. So I worked out and then talking to you, right? But on a normal day, um, I read, usually you could read for, you know, let's say two to four hours, maybe three to four hours, whatever it is. Um, I do not read fast. So I guess that, because I, I think we talked about uh, privately before, people think I have like some kind of weird hack or like I speed read. And it's no, I just throw a lot of hours at it. So I read about, because I, not only am I reading, I'm taking notes. So I have a physical book in front of me. I sit down with a physical book, a pen, a ruler, post-it notes, and scissors. It's like I'm doing arts and crafts over here. And um, I want, all I do is, well, let me back up. How do, how do you figure out what you want to read? Uh, I have, I don't know. I haven't counted. Like 100, 200, I don't know, a lot. A lot of books, physical books that are in my house um, that I haven't read yet. So I just go and look. It's like, what am I most excited to learn about right now? All of this comes from like my natural interest. The, the line I say is like the most interesting people are the most interested. So there's sometimes I pick up a book, I start reading, I think I'm going to love it. I don't like it. If I don't like it, I don't ever turn it into a podcast. Um, so I said, what am I most interested in, re in learning about right now, this very second? That's what I start reading about. Um, then as I read, just anything that pops up, I underline, and then I just, whatever first comes to my mind, like, oh, is this related to, uh, a way somebody I covered in the past things? Like, what did, what I read this, this paragraph, what popped to my mind? I write that down on a post note. Then I do that for the entire book. Um, you know, if you're reading 25 pages an hour, thereabouts, something like that, let's say you read four hours a day, it's a hundred pages. It's pretty slow actually. Like when I hear Warren Buffett say he can read like 500 or 600 pages a day, I can't do that. Like, I don't know how. Um, and so that's the first part of my day. Now, the way I look at the podcast is also different where I don't look at them. Like I have to do divide things in episodes. But to me right now, Founders is one giant 400 hour conversation on the history of entrepreneurship. It just happens to be like, what I'm working on right now, the, the these two or three episodes I'm doing on Paul Graham. That's just a continuation of a conversation that's been going on since 2016, right? 
Um, so then you take that and like, how do you, it's important not just to read books, but to like reread and revisit the past things, because now you're at almost 300 books, like you're going to forget a lot of things. And so I store this, these things in this app called Readwise. That means after I'm done reading the book, I have to take pictures. If it's not, so, sometimes I do Kindle, but you know, that's probably 10% of the episodes I've done. And Readwise will automatically take your Kindle highlights and put it into your Readwise app. But if, you, if you're doing physical books, you have to take pictures of them with the Readwise app. It takes pictures of the page, it reads the page, you have to do you know, minor fixes. Essentially, like that takes a few hours too. When I'm done reading a book, I have to go back through it just to get the, the highlights into Readwise. To me, Readwise is just my searchable database of all the stuff I want to remember uh, based on what I read. And not only can I review, so my second half of the day is what I call my practice, where I read, reread past highlights. Sometimes that's in the Readwise apps. Sometimes that'll just like pick up a book like you can see right here. And I'll just be like, hey, I'm going to read through this, this biography of Jay Gold. And, you know, in essentially the way I have my books organized, like you can quote unquote reread an entire book in like 30 minutes. Yeah. Cause like you're just reading the parts and the notes that you have. Um, and so the, the essentially splitting it to the new stuff I'm reading now, part two is rereading and researching, uh, past stuff that'll, Oh, wow. I forgot that Steve Jobs said that. Oh, I forgot Jeff Bezos said that. And then I'll use whatever I happen to be reading this week usually pops up into uh, the, the current episode I'm, I'm working on. And then you also do all your own video and or your all your own editing, all your own social posts right now. I mean, you touch everything. Nobody is helping you on this. It's a full on blitz. It is a handmade product at scale because the, the podcasting is inherently leveraged, right? The, the form, like when I had five people listening and that happened before, and now I have tens of thousands listening, like that the next goal I'm trying to get to is a hundred thousand total people listening. So to answer your question, I guess we'll we'll back up. Yeah, I do everything myself. I, I don't think like I I'll be able to do that forever. I think of it as like a handmade product at scale. Uh podcasting obviously gives you leverage, whether one person's listening or a million people are listening, it's the same work for you. So eventually I'll I'll have to like find like a Johnny podcasts. <laughs> or like somebody. Yeah, like just and and the 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 bigger the back catalog gets, the more information I have to go through. Like I, I will have you know eventually somebody, but like right now, that is also a form of education. Um, where if I'm forced to do it myself, I'll understand if I when I hire somebody if they're doing a good job or not. Um, and I don't right now. I I think I'm doing a terrible job. Uh, I could be doing a such a better job on repurposing the use the the unusual uh information my business collects repurposing that into educational content that you could post, put every single place on the internet that then points back to the podcast and gets you more listeners. I do that, but I give myself like out of one in 10, like I'm a two. And if I had a system in place or a team, like you get that to 10, that's the difference. You know, that could bring you, that could 10X where the audience is now. To the extent you want to share, you kind of made the comment that once you met Patrick and did that episode, it shot you out of a cannon. And on one end, it's like, yeah, there's been four years worth of amazing work done to lead you up to that moment. What about that episode? Was it just the size of his audience? Like, what was, why was that the thing that made you take this next kind of quantum leap uh, in your career? So I started off also, uh, um, artificially constraining the size of my audience by doing something really dumb, 
which is making an entire, like podcasts are hard to grow as they own. And then I put a paywall up on like, I, you could used to be able to listen to the first 30 minutes for free of founders. Then if you want to listen to the rest of a paywall and that like artificially constrains your audience by a factor of like a thousand. And actually Patrick started listening to founders when it was a subscription podcast because so many people he knew found it and recommended and like, hey, you got to do it. And at first he says, uh, he said, I think he said on that episode, he's like, the first person said, told me, he's like, yeah, okay. The second person he's like, told him, he's like, yeah, okay. He's like, by the fifth person, he's like, all right, I got to listen to this. And so then he listens, starts liking it. We are introduced by our mutual friend, Sam. And me and Patrick just start, like, we just talk because we're both podcasters. We're both interested in entrepreneurship. Uh, we both love to read. And so we talk for like just months, just as, you know, as, as friends. And then slowly I talked to a bunch of other podcasters. The acquired guys really helped me with this where they sat on zoom with me and they're like, they're, they're way nicer than I am. And they're like, look, look, here's our numbers. Here's our download numbers. Here's the difference between how many people will listen for free compared to our, our paid podcast. It's like essentially saying, David, you're doing this wrong. Like your show is good. You need to open it up. And so more people can see it. And then it just helps it grow and grow and grow. I talked to a bunch of other podcasters, some of which uh, are partners in shows that have over a million listeners that listen to founders and told me the same thing. They're like, in nice ways, they didn't use this terminology, but like, David, you're an idiot. You're doing it the exact wrong way and you shouldn't because you have something that's that's rare and uh, rare and valuable. And so anyways, I call up Patrick and um, one day I was like, hey, um, I'm going to make an ad-based version of Founders. I'm going to remove the paywall. Um, I'm going to do this no matter what, but I think we should do it together and it should be, Founders should be on your network. And his response was like, ooh, he was like very interested in that. Um, and Patrick's really easy to deal with. Uh, it, like it took one phone call and he's like, well, I own the shows on my network. Like, do you want, like, are you trying to like sell equity? He's like, no, no, no I want to own my show. And then he's like, I have all these resources. Colossus has a ton of resources. And I was like, listen, I don't need any help with the podcast. I'm literally just going to do what I do. All I want you help from you is like, you help amplify my audience. Um, cause he's got a giant audience, um, and connect me with first class advertisers. And he goes, all right, cool, let's do it. And so then we talked over the next few weeks. I was like, what's our launch plan? Like, how are we going to do this? And the, the centerpiece of that launch plan is me going on his very successful show that is in really good alignment with founders. If you like invest like the best, you're going to like founders. If you like founders, you're going to like invest like the best. Right. And then he, you know, puts it out. He's like, we wind up being a good episode. Uh, but he also like promoted it and asked people to share it and like, you know, just help spread it. And so that really jump started, you know, it essentially put like founders where you have this, like at that point I had like 250 episodes or 260 episodes something like that. It's like just sitting there waiting for people to discover it. So Patrick shines a big giant light on it. And then that's where I've set up. I've been like redlining life since then. I will catch up by the end of the year. I'll be back to like normal. Um, but it's just getting used to this, this very different reality. Um, and the answer to your question, it's just because Patrick has been growing his show the right way since 2016. He's earned the trust and respect and attention of people that are, you know, some of the most successful people in the world. And if Patrick says, hey, this show is good and it's worth your time, they'll at least give it a try. 
And then from there, the podcast will do the rest of the work. It's either, it's either good or it's not. But if it's good, you'll find another listener. And as you know, once you find one listener, if they like it, they'll tell two or three more. And it's, you can't rush this stuff. But if you're, if you're going to do it for a long period of time, like that one listener will eventually bring you 10 listeners. And then that, that 10 will bring you a hundred. It just takes time to, you, you can't interrupt the compounding. Yep. We are going to talk about Jay Gold. That's the founder we're going to go in on. But before we end this conversation on just podcasting in general, I think one of the things you, you, we talked about in our first call, which just got me excited, just as you think about how, where we are in podcasting as a, as a world and like how big the opportunity is and what kind of, I mean, I've never met somebody more exciting about, more excited about the future of podcasting and the size that it can get to and how early we actually are. Just kind of like, how would you describe the opportunity that is in podcasting um, and why just the industry in general gets you excited? Okay, so I have an unfair advantage here again, where um, one, I'm super passionate about podcasting. I can't think of like doing anything else for a living once this is like presented as an opportunity, right? But two, I study, in many cases, I study like the beginning of industries for a living. You can kind of think about that. Like there's so many examples where like the people that were able to build great wealth, they built great wealth because they got into, into a very beginning of an industry, right? So I've studied like the beginning of the American automotive industry, the beginning of the technology industry in both hardware and software, uh, the beginning of racing industry with like and building supercars like the Ferraris and the Lamborghinis and the Bugattis and all that stuff. Um, and this just occurred too, but like uh, the beginning of the NBA, I just did a two-part series on Kobe Bryant. And there's there's the same, I always say on the podcast, like history doesn't repeat, human nature does. At the beginning of industries, two things happen over and over again. Uh, everybody says you're too late. It's too late to get involved. And everybody says, like, if an industry works, the numbers are always going to get so much bigger. Everybody says it can't possibly, the numbers can't possibly get bigger. And usually, like, the, the, the number of sales, the number of money you can make. Uh, one example of this is in the early days of Nike. Nike and Adidas were fight, fighting out on, like, uh, getting Olympic athletes and, um, and runners specifically, like, to do endorsements. And they did, like, one endorsement. It was, like, you know, $100,000. And they're like, no matter what, no one's ever going to have another athletic shoe endorsement more than $100,000. Now you wouldn't think they, they wouldn't even get out of bed for that. You know what I mean? Like uh, Kobe, Kobe's dad was in the NBA in like, I think this is the 1970s maybe. And he gets signed uh, in Philadelphia where he, where he grew up. And he gets signed to a $300,000 a year contract for three years. And a few years earlier in that, one of the teams was pissed off because they had to pay a guy, I think like 50 or $60,000 a year to play in the NBA. And they're like, okay, we gave Jelly Bean, that was his dad's nickname, 300,000 a year, but like that's, can't go any higher than that. It's like Steph Curry can't even walk out his door. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they, they just get, they're literally billionaires that, that are like, it's just so absurd that we see this over and over again. That's like, no, it can't, if you're in an industry that works, we don't understand large numbers. We don't understand time. Human, this is a main theme of that. I realized like we have such a poor understanding of reality and we seem to be, we don't understand that we don't understand. And so my whole thing is like watching 
game tape, which is like, if you read a biography of an entrepreneur, like you're essentially watching game tape on their career play out, right? Same way like uh, Kobe would study Michael Jordan. I'm doing the same thing, but I'm reading books to do it. And so um, when I look at podcasting and I hear the same things, too late to start a podcast. Numbers can't get any bigger than this. It's like, it's, it's, it's going to plateau. And I'm like, oh, okay, cool. I want you to believe that because if you believe that, you'll stop yourself from even trying. Um, and so then it like it reduces the amount of competition you could possibly have. And so the conversation you and I were having was, well, this happens all the time. We're like, I remember Ford, um, Henry Ford celebrating when they sold 8,000 cars in a year. Eventually they were like making that like in an hour. Like who knows what they, even today, like, and that he died a long time ago. Like how many cars does Ford make in a day now? Like, who knows? Like it, the size, it, it, these things get so much, much bigger. So like we could take, we could take like right now, you look at the largest audience that people know about. It's Joe Rogan. They estimate his audience is, you know, 11 million, 12 million people, maybe 13 million people, whatever the number is, right? That is the, my point is like, whatever the largest is now will be common in the future. I don't know how long it'll take, you know, but like, we're not going to, we, we have not like, oh, the, the largest podcast audience you can aggregate is going to be 12 million people now. And it's going to be 12 million people in the future. That's just not true. That never happens everywhere. The industry is already working. Time will t- carry most of the weight. And so you will see a bit, you'll see a business like me and you build business podcasts. It's education for, you know, investors, entrepreneurs, executives, people interested in both real estate and entrepreneurship, right? It's inevitable that there's going to be a business podcast and I'm not talking about like how I built this, right? Because that's like different. Like there will be an independent podcast, just like Joe Rogan's an independent podcast, just like you're an independent podcast, just like I'm an independent podcast. It is inevitable that there will be a business podcast that has 10 million listeners. And when you have, if any kind of audience that size, think about how much money Joe is able to make, the economic value of his podcast. It he, It's not like he's going to sell it, but like he gets money from Spotify. He gets money in ad revenue. He gets money from uh he owns, he owned, you know, private, uh, he owned equity in one of those, the companies that he would advertise for. Uh, he sells out arenas. The economic impact of his podcast and the, the 10, like the 15 years that it's already been in existence, it's probably, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars have flowed directly to him already. Like he will most likely be the first, the world's first billionaire podcaster. But if there's one, then there'll be two and then there'll be five. And like, think about Microsoft was the first company in history to sell a million, uh, excuse me, a billion dollars worth of software in a year. Now, how many companies sell billion dollars of software in a year? A ton of them. You just, so you see where the edge is and you just realize that's going to be the new normal one day. And you have to figure out how you get there and how you maneuver there. Um, and in the cases of me and you, like our, our, it's even more valuable because of who's in the audience. So if you want to advertise on like, you know, let's say you're a, I don't know, like a, a, a show on like football or something, you know, like the average net worth or intelligence level or whatever, like the average purchasing power in that audience, it's valuable if you have a lot of them, right? But let's say you have a million people listening to a football podcast and you have a million investors or entrepreneurs listening to a podcast. The difference between the value of those audiences is like a hundred X. It's not 10 X, it's not five X. It is unbelievable. And you know this already, not that you have to say publicly, but like how much people wouldn't believe the economic benefit to your company that your podcast has already produced. And so that is where me and you are in perfect alignment because it's both 
podcasting is both under, uh, underrated and misunderstood. And me and you are exploiting that misunderstanding. Yeah, I think I, I'm just now starting to understand the gravity of how it shows up in a lot of areas of my life. And um, I, like I said, I think uh, you've gotten me pumped to really want to take this thing to the next level, uh, not just because, you know, the, the, the ad dollars that a podcast can make, but everywhere else it shows up in life, which starts making things really interesting. That, and that's the key. Ad, ad revenue, that's fine. Uh, you know, to advertise on a That's a, actually a podcast. the smallest part probably it's, in the long run. If I do this correctly, in the future, it'll be impossible for you to buy an ad on Founders. Because it's just, it's, it makes more sense where you have, like, you get leverage through the equity, right? And even like this example of uh, the guy I talked to you yesterday, the second business that he's interested in starting is a product with, that he's already using. It's like what Amazon does. They don't launch products unless they're the first customer. He's been the first customer of this thing that he's building. And he's like, well, if I sell this company for a hundred million, I would just do that other thing. And like, he loves founders. He tells friends, he's like, don't listen to any of the podcasts. He's like, just listen to founders and read the books. That's all you have to do. Um, and I go, listen, dude, you're a freak and I don't want partners, but if you build a product, I can like, to me, podcasting, B2B podcasting, what me and you do, is an innovation and distribution. And we know that this is like the, the secret, it's like an open, if you, are, if you are paying attention, you already see this. Go look at what Patrick is doing on Invest Like the Best. He is so much further ahead of anybody else to the point where I meet with other investors. I'm like, no one understands how smart it is what he's doing. And I know because we talk all the time and we like, we're both super obsessed with it. I'm like, and I'm not an investor. So like, he's way like, we're, we're going to take different paths, but we have, we see the power how it is, but I'm like, dude, this guy is like, he literally can take a company from seed, from an idea with no customers to getting them their first thousands of customers to a billion dollar valuations just from his podcast. And you think like, that's not valuable. Like, are you fucking crazy? And then he also has, Patrick's also, you know, super driven. And he's got a lot of ideas. I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I just started this, this second podcast. It's a uh, private podcast it's called Founders Daily. It's literally one minute a day. And so it's basically I'm, I'm starting like a, it's going to be like a membership to, for people that are interested that want to go like deeper on founders. And so that's the first inclination. The second one is, um, is I get to meet all these crazy people. And so they don't, well, they won't do interviews, but if I ask them, it's like, Hey, let's have a 20 minute conversation about a product that you're building inside your company like founder conversations, would you do it for me? And they're like, yeah, I wouldn't do it for anybody else, but I'll do it for you. Patrick's uh, like, I'm going to launch this. I haven't done it yet, but I hopefully I can convince him to, because he's got these ideas that no one else knows about that I think are really, really interesting. And if I can get him to talk about it, if he wants to talk about it. Um, but like, that's, a, that's a, a, another idea. So anyways, my point is like, Patrick's building an empire. I'm like gonna, I'm going to focus on just doing podcasting and whatever I do is I want to people to always be surprised at how few employees that whatever whatever founders gets involved in has. Like I want maximum impact, but I'm not. I don't want to manage a bunch of other people. And so, the 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 logical thing is like, let, let me be specific because I'm just hearing myself talk. I'm like David, you're you're not being clear. You communicate for a living. Come on, you gotta you gotta do better than this. So think about what what um what Joe Rogan did, right? Um. And for people that don't know this story, like, it, and again, this is just typical 
beginning of industry behavior. Okay. If you go back, I, I, my friend, uh, my friend, Eric actually introduced me to Joe Rogan's podcast. Like, I mean, dude, this is probably 2010. And cause, uh, my friend was really into UFC and he's like, come over to my house. You got to see this weird internet show that was like live stream from his couch. Right. And there'd be like, like zoom kind of level graphics of like snow or some weird stuff on it. And, um, so anyways, he, he was very early to this. And so at the time, the only, like one of his only, um, advertisers was this thing called a fleshlight. It is a, a male sex toy. I'm not getting into detail. Like, but anyways, the guy, there was a guy working inside that company that saw how many people were buying this thing because they heard about it on the podcast. And he goes, well, if you could sell this, you could sell anything. So he approached Joe. He started, they founded this company called on it together which is like workout equipment, supplements, stuff that like they're into, right? Joe, from, from the record, from what I've heard, um, he did, not only did he, he do ads for the, the business, right? But he took 30% ownership in that business. Unilever comes a couple of years later and the, the rumor is, I've heard anywhere from a 375 million to a $500 million purchase price. So that's what, like, you know, on the top end, 75 million, I don't know what 30, like a good amount of money. Okay. So not including ad revenue, not including the Spotify deal, not including selling at arenas, not including any other products he wants to launch one business, one, one advertiser, one advertising slot. He's got like three or four slots, whatever it is. He just took one advertising slot and put in something he owned equity in. And that made him, you know, who knows what he made over the lifetime because it's a private company let's say made him somewhere between 50 and a hundred million dollars from a podcast. No one's like, that is the clearly the future you see with Mr. Beast, just trying to raise 150 million under $1.5 billion valuation. He's like, you could put ads in my video or I could just say, Hey, go to my hamburger restaurant. Hey, buy my chocolate brand. Hey, buy my shirt. Uh, in your case, invest capital with me. Tell me about the deals. Like whatever it, it my point is, it's not, it's, it, it could be applied to whatever it is that you're doing as long as you start with, hey, I'm producing something other people find valuable. I didn't know any of this stuff when I started Founders. That was not my motivation. My motivation was like, I like podcasts. I like entrepreneurship. I like books. I like history. There's probably other people that like that too. And then I executed on that for year after year after year to the point where now people are like, like, you know, you if you want to sign up for Founders Daily, there's no preview. Like, it's not expensive. But it's like, hey, I, t I say, this is the idea I have. It's something I want for myself. And people buy it because they trust you. Because like, Dave is not going to half-ass shit. Like, he's not going to come here and be like, you know, it's, it's not going to be any bullcrap. Like, he's going to do something that he finds valuable. And he's going to tell you why he's doing it and why it's valuable. Um, and th so that could be just directed at anything. You just have to make sure that you never, one, can't, like, keep the main thing the main thing, right? None of this works. If I start getting distracted and start working in a business, that's not the podcast. So that you can partner with people, but like the way it is, is like, I'm not going to be working in the business. I'm the distribution arm, right? Because I am putting all this value out there. And I know this too, because uh, Jocko, I used this, the example earlier, Jocko's doing this. You can't buy an ad on Jocko's podcast. Go and, and look at what he's doing. At the end of Jocko's podcast, he does his ad section, right? And it's all stuff he, he it's all businesses he owns. So first it started out, he, he was a best-selling author, so he'd sell books. Then he started selling, uh, like he's got his own energy drink line now. Then he's got, he, he partnered up with this company called Origin Maine, where they're trying to bring 
manufacturing back to America because this whole thing is like very pro-America. Hey, we saw that outsourcing our supply chains to other companies. So the management of the company can make, you know, an extra 10% can, is disastrous. He's like, I don't want to do that. I was like, I'm going to make American made jobs. And so he makes work boots. He makes uh, stuff for jujitsu. He makes clothing. He makes jeans. Um, he has uh, leadership seminars. He's got a leadership consulting company. All of this. He's probably generated like, who knows how much money this guy has generated, but there you can't advertise on Jocko. It's like, if you like Jocko and you're saying, hey, I just gave you three hours of value information. Here's 20, you know, here's me talking about the things I'm into for 10 or 20 minutes. If you happen to need these things, if you want jeans or boots or seminars, and you know, maybe you want to get them for me. And so like, I need a new pair of jeans, right? I'm not like into clothes. Like, uh, like, you know, I'm not like, I don't do like high fashion stuff. I don't actually even understand a lot of that stuff. And so like the most I've ever paid for jeans, is, like, I don't know, hundred bucks, something like that, whatever. Jocko's jeans are like $250 because they're made in America. Like they're and they're like, they're not, you know, it's not Levi's made in who knows where in Korea or whatever. And so my whole thing is like, I don't, I've never spent $250 on a pair of jeans in my life. But if, I, if this choice is between spending a hundred dollars on a pair of jeans that who knows, that I don't know that company are spending 250 on somebody that has like greatly benefited my life. I've learned a ton from his podcast, a ton from his books, a ton from his book recommendations. I'm going to send my money to him. Every, and people are like, oh, like it, so some degree people might think that's irrational. It's completely rational because humans have this thing where it's like, if you've, if people feel they do something for you, they will automatically feel compelled to try to return the favor. So the weirdest thing that happens to me is so many people send me, hey, thank you very much for your podcast. And I'm like, no, thank you that I get to listen. I get to read books for a living. And I wouldn't be able to do that if you didn't listen. So thank you. No, thank you. And so that is extremely powerful because what you, you and I have talked about in private is when you go into these meetings with investors or getting deals, they are like, hey, I feel I know Chris because I've listened to his podcast. And it's like, yeah, you do know me. It's building like, scale. It's building trust at scale. Yeah, they, it's a way for people to get to know you. And that's the biggest thing. Like if they get to know you and then you realize like there's some, and that's why I think podcasting is the best medium because you can, you, your personality is going to come out. Yeah. You can't record audio for hundreds of hours. And fake it. And, and you know, yeah, you can't. It's, this is not a movie. We don't have makeup on. This is not a script. Like I have no idea what we're going to talk about next. Which you I know? think and is so, the most critical point is it's authentic and it's genuine. And I think humans have this unbelievable radar for when something's genuine and when something's not. And I think it manifests, it, you can know this in products. Cause like go to Olive Garden and think about the service you get there as opposed to going down the street to a single restaurant that's the, the, the lady that owns the restaurant works in there every day. She has one thing. She greets you when she comes in. Like I have experiences like this all the time. It's like, oh, you clearly tell that she gives a damn where the people at Olive Garden, they're so separate. Oh, man, ownership from the actual delivery of the product is so discon disconnected. It's obvious to the customer. Like I'm not worried. This is something we talked about. Again, keep referencing this conversation I had yesterday where we celebrate in business. This is one thing that I actually disagree with. It's like, we celebrate bigness. Where we should be celebrating is excellence. Like, I don't need to be the biggest podcast in the world. I want to be the best. And that's obviously subjective, you know, the best in my domain, you know? But it's like, there's so many things where it's just like, 
uh, perfect example. It's like, I want to celebrate. There's an Argentinian restaurant next to my house where this is an example. Like the, the, the proprietor's in there. She knows who you are. Like she, there's, there's true hospitality in the sense of the world, in the word, right? She's never going to have the wealth that like McDonald's does, McDonald's has, right? But when you have a special occasion, you want to take your wife on a, uh, you know, a date. It's like celebrating something. You're not taking your wife to McDonald's. You're going to go to a place that is excellent at what they do. And a lot of, especially American businesses, like we fetishize bigness where it's like, I want to, I want to fetishize excellence. And sometimes they're not mutually exclusive. I think Apple's the one rare, um, the one, and it took a long time for it to get there, but the, the one rare exception to this is where like they legitimately made the best products in their field. And then that compounded and it wound up being, you know, the biggest or one of the biggest companies in the world. But for most of Apple's history, it had their market share was like 5%. You were weird. You were a very strange person if you had a, an Apple instead of Windows. Because Microsoft is bigness. Apple was excellence. One of the things I, that stuck with me from our original conversation was also um, how many employees it takes to run a podcast, even the largest podcast. And at that point, I think we talked about with Rogan, I think he has two or three or four full-time employees, largest podcast in the world. But you hit a point where, yeah, maybe you need two or three people even when you're doing a million listeners, but you don't need more people to get to 12 million. Um, and so when you were talking about it, it's like it's better than software. It's the highest leverage opportunity maybe in the world. What else can you do to 12 million people or build this ecosystem and have three or four full-time employees working on it? Yeah, the way I uh, phrased it was when I was reading this book called Becoming Steve Jobs, which I think this is episode 265, if I remember correctly. They spent like, this is a biography of Steve Jobs, and they spent a good part of a chapter talking about the innovation that Bill Gates had was the disentangling of software from hardware. Most of the software being written at the time was written by hardware makers. They didn't even account for the cost completely because they just bundled it with a, the, the cost of the device. Bill Gates had this, this observation, you know, back in the 70s is like, no, software is valuable on its own. Let's pull this out. We don't have to, like, we want to write software. We could just be a pure software company. We don't have to generate hardware. He told Steve, I think he's like, listen, every computer you have, you have some kind of you know, costs associated with that computer. Like there's physical goods that in that. He goes, every copy of my software is like, there's no cost. So um, what I said is what I realized, um, and again, this is the benefit of reading the book because this book is about the history of like Steve, Steve's life, but also the beginning of his career and the different paths. Like, hey, you have these two people that wind up being some of the richest uh, people in the world and building some of the most valuable companies, but they had different ideas and they could attack it in different ways, which I think is a very powerful idea on, on its own. But then it's also, you say, okay, well, how does this apply to me? And what I realized was like, oh, the podcasting has the same economic characteristics of software. The only difference is they're coding with their fingers and I'm coding with my mouth. Um, and so that's where you get into a situation where, you know, we already know, like, this is not a secret. There's podcasts that we know that are making at least 20 to 50 million a year. There's a bunch of these, these deals out there. Uh, call her daddy is getting paid 20. That, 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 uh, woman is like 26 years old, something like that. I don't know, 28, something like that. Her contract for Spotify is 60 million over three years. It's like basketball player numbers, right? We go back to that, that example. How many people does she have working on the podcast? Two, three, uh, not a giant team. It's just an interview podcast like this. Like how many people do you need? Um, then you have Joe Rogan, you know, 
the number that was put out there is most likely incorrect, but let's say it is only a hundred million. Uh, it was at three or four years. So that's, you know, let's say 25 million a year. But from what I hear, it's like a lot larger than that. Uh, you have one of the gambling companies like the DraftKings, they're paying Pat McAfee 30 million a year for his podcast. Um, and somebody just did a crazy deal with that. It was like a $90 million deal with SmartList. Anyways, point being is like, this is not like, if you're outside the industry, it just sounds silly. The idea that like a 26 year old woman can interview other women and, you know, mostly about their sex lives. Um, and that somebody goes around and pays them 20 million a year for that just sounds, you know, you know, absolutely crazy, but that has already happened. Um, and so my whole thing is like, I think this is where me and Patrick, why we get along so well and why we're in perfect alignment is like his whole point was he arrived at this conclusion independently and I arrived at this conclusion independently. And then we meet, we're like, oh, we think about this the exact same way where for the people that we're targeting it, right, which is the most successful people in the world or people that are eventually will be the most successful people in the world, um, they're, they're not asking for more content. They uh, are trying to learn something that can make their business better. Like I heard something in a conversation you had with that guy I referenced earlier that I then tell my friend and he's like, yeah, that's like it, it causes him not to sell the business to maybe make a mistake, right? And so what we realized is like, well, how are they going to do this? So they read a lot, right? Entrepreneurs, investors read way more than the average person. Um, they're not gonna sit around watching video all day because they're working, they're building businesses. You have, you have, the reason this is so powerful for, for investors and entrepreneurs is because we build machines that allow us to profit off of our knowledge. So that's why they're learning machines because they just, learning is a form of wealth that they then transfer into money in their bank account, right? And so what we realize is like, these people want to be learning when they're doing other things. So they listen to my podcast, your podcast, Patrick's podcast, when they're commuting, when they're flying somewhere, when they're going for a walk, when they're washing dishes, when they're doing other things. And that is why audio, if you're trying to help, if you're trying to make educational content for the most successful people in the world, the medium for that is podcast. And once you come to that realization, then you it's foolish to, to spread yourself thin on other things. Now you can make video, you can make written context, uh, text, but audio is like, you have, you're doing the audio and then from that, you can repurpose it to video, to, to text, everything else, all with, with your goals, just pushing it back to audio, right? But your main thing is always going to be on-demand audio because in Patrick's case, he's making shows for people like him. He's not sitting around watching videos all day, but he watches, he listens to podcasts because he's on a hike or he's in the car. He texted me yesterday. He's like, your Paul Graham episode was amazing. Like he had already listened to it. Like that is why when me and you get on the phone, it's like, dude, you've already had an amazing, uh, like, uh, benefit from your show. If I was you, I would, and you have tons of resources. Like I would go full in on this <laughs> because it, you, like, it's the tip of the iceberg. Imagine what your show is going to be in five years, 10 years, 15 years from now. And you get to talk to interesting people. It's like, I'm sure people make time for you just like they'll make time for me, but it's so much easier to say, Hey, Let's talk for an hour and I'll record it and you'll get, you know, attention on your business or whatever you're doing, you know, tens of thousands of people or whatever the number is like that is a lot easier to sell. 
the best thing about the podcast for me, well, there's a lot of things, but is I love doing it. I, lo- I, I started it because I was the one that loved having all the interesting conversations and thought, well, maybe some other people might want to hear these too. And that, that, that fire has only grown. Um, yeah, I feel lucky. I mean, the more I talk to you about this, the more excited I get. I'll be honest with you. Yeah. And the biggest thing is like, you already have something that's, uh, like think about how crazy it is. Um, I don't know if we talked about this. So I talked to you, you were explaining what four capital does. I talked to Mitchell. Mitchell knows all these like real estate people. It's like magic what you guys do to me. Right. Cause he explains like the, the benefits and the cash flow and all that other stuff we don't have to get into now. So what I did is like, I called up my friend, Sam, who's a lot smarter than I am. And I was like, man, like, cause he's involved in all the, like he, he kept mentioning these people. I was like, how, like, how do you know all these real estate people? What's going on here? And I go, Hey, do you know who Chris Powers is? He goes, yeah. He goes, I listen to his podcast. <laughs> and it's like, think about the people you have in your audience. You don't even know. You know what I mean? Like, and again, you were just doing it because you like to do it. It grew naturally through word of mouth, through Twitter, whatever the case is. It's just like, imagine if you you put a lot more resources behind it and you just keep aggregating these people. And then so anyways, Sam was like breaking down, like, this is what, like what happens. This is why it's like another form of education. It's like all this stuff, like it's like a snake eating its tail. It's like this flywheel. It's like, okay, I had a conversation with Chris. I listened to this podcast. Now I'm having this personal, you know, tutoring. And understanding like, okay, we well could apply that idea to, uh, you know, industrial. You can apply this idea to uh, apartments in LA. You can apply this uh, uh, idea to self-storage spaces. And it's just all, it's like, oh, wow. Like my world gets completely opened up as a result of these discussions. Well, and, and, and since I do interviews, I've often thought about it is if I interview you, which I am, I'm going to get to know the hundred people closest to you because I interviewed you. And so if I wanted to meet more people in Miami, I might interview you because you're in Miami. Or if I wanted to meet more people that were just close to you, I would just interview you. And so I think of every episode that I do, I think of it as like this podcast is going to land and then all these new people that love this person are going to listen to it. And and because it's an interview style, I can geographically, I meet people more around the country, but I also get to know everybody's closest relationships by just having one conversation with them. And so when I'm having that conversation with them, I'm often thinking, what do those hundred people closest to them want to know? Because I'll get people that I'll meet and I'll be like, man, you had my brother on. And like, I didn't even know that about him. Um, and I, so I don't know, it's this weird thing I think about, but I look at it as like, I'm not just meeting you. I'm meeting everybody that loves you and is close to you. And that's powerful. And it's amazing how small the internet makes the world. Okay. We've been going for a couple hours. I'm going to bring it home on one and we're definitely going to do a round two sometime next year, but you have I'll come on anytime you want me to. I know. I, I just, <laughs> I think the world of you, um, you're way more impressive than I am. So <laughs> we've talked about founders today all day. You've you've read hundreds of books. You've studied some of the most fascinating people in the world. This is a pretty loaded question. Is there anybody that is the number one for you? Is there somebody that's like this is my guy or or my girl or whomever? So there is um like if if the question to me is like okay who's the best entrepreneur to ever live? So like, as far as their approach to work, that would be Steve Jobs to me. Edwin Land is up there too, who Steve Jobs was Steve Jobs' hero. Edwin Land was the founder of Polaroid, done like seven podcasts on him. 
just because so much of Steve Jobs' ideas, he learned from Edwin Land and then applied what Edwin Land did at Polaroid to Apple. But uh, what, what a lot of this is uh, like negative advice in the sense that if, you're, if you were so good at your job that somebody wrote a book about it, which is every single person that goes on Founders, uh, usually you over-optimize your professional life to the detriment of your personal one. And so, you know, Steve, in some degree, when he was working on that biography of Isaacson, when he knew he was dying, he's like, you know, part of the reason I'm doing this because I want my kids to know who I was because I spent a lot of time away from them. So I don't want that in my life or for my life. Uh, so I have Ed Thorpe, which is uh, episode, I think, 222. He wrote this book called A Man for All Markets. And what Ed did that was smart was he he's the person of everybody I studied that came closest to mastering life where he figured out like, what's a happy life? He's like, you got to take care of your health. You got to be a good husband, good father. Got to treat life like the adventure it is. So you actually, actually got to have fun. And then your work should be intellectually stimulating and then you should be really wealthy um, because wealth buys freedom. But once you hit more money than you need, like than you need or that you could spend, you're really foolish to give, to trade time, to keep trading time for money. So once he hit that, that, you know, had enough money and he was very, very wealthy. I mean, he started buying, he met uh, Warren Buffett. He had dinner with Warren Buffett. They were both in their thirties. Warren Buffett was 38 years old. He has dinner with Warren Buffett, leaves the dinner and t- turns to his wife and goes, that, that guy's gonna be the richest man in America one day. <laughs> it's like obvious at that point uh, to, to at least. Um, but what he did was smart. He's like, I have all these ways to make money, but that means I spend less time taking care of my health, less time having fun, less time with my wife. And he writes the book and his, his wife had just died of cancer. Uh, less time, you know, I'd be an absentee father. He's like, that doesn't make any sense to me. So there's like a wisdom there. Um, and so I, I think the title of that episode is like, that's my personal blueprint. It's like, that's what I'm trying to do. It's like, well, I'm not always going to be working seven days a week, as many hours as I am on the podcast, because I'm still learning how to do it. I'll build systems. I'll always do it like how I'm doing it. But like, I'm going to have to hire people. (laughs) Like, it just is what it is. But I want a balance of like my my work is something I love to do. It's intellectually stimulating. It scales. It's very abnormal that you know it'll keep growing and the the amount of work I'm doing doesn't really have to change. Um, it'll generate as much money as I need in life, um, as long as the quality's there. I spend a lot of time with my wife. Spend a lot of time with my kids. Um, I still have fun and I still am able to take care of my health. So this is like I basically found what I want to do, and I just want to keep doing that over a long period of time. Ed's writing that book when he's like 80, you know? And so he'd been doing that for, for a very long time. Now, there's another question that I think might be interesting to you is somebody asked on Twitter yesterday, um, if you could go back and partner with any entrepreneur in history, who would it be? And so somebody, uh, somebody at mentioned me, was like, we should ask Founders Podcast. And I was like, that's really not the right answer because these people don't partner. <laughs> Like, even if they have co-founders, like you are clearly in a subordinate role. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, I go, the answer there, the question is like, if you were going to give any entrepreneur in history money, who would it be? Because they're not like, they don't want you. (laughs) Like, they got things figured out. They're not, they're not looking for partners. And so it's like, the way I would phrase that is like, if you had to bet on any entrepreneur in history, and I'm not talking about like, I'm talking about pure economics. And that would be what me and you were talking about, Jay Gold, who we were texting about privately because I did a, an episode on the book called Dark, Dark Genius of Wall Street, The Misunderstood Life of Jay Gold, King of the Robber Barons. 
And the reason I, I would say that's who I'd put my money on is because one, I read a book about them, but what I'm like, the, the people, what I'm interested in is like, who are the people, who are the really A plus players that were alive when Jay Gold was alive? Who did they think? Like, who are they into be? And so you have like Rockefeller. Yeah, Rockefeller is asked the questions like, who, he's like, who's the greatest businessman that you've ever met? He said, without hesitation, Jay Gold. You had Cornelius Vanderbilt, who was the richest person in the world at the time, who's like 30, 40 years older than Jay Gold. Said Jay Gold's the smartest man in America. There's my answer right there. I was like, they know more than I do. I was like, I'm putting my money on Jay Gold. And I would have loved, he died early, you know, he's in his 50s. Uh, I forgot what he died from, consumption? I can't remember. Like tuberculosis or fever or something like that. Um, but I would just love to see where it happened. And you know, uh, it was serious because like 30 or 40 years later, uh, the SEC is founded and they're founded. And some of the first laws that the regulations they put in place were things that Jay Gold did. <laughs> it's like being so good at, you know, there's very no, there's almost no rules of the game at this point. It's like, you were so good at the game they had to change the rules. <laughs> I will tell you, I was most fascinated by that episode purely by listening to you talk about how two of the people that we actually know the best uh, I believe it was uh, Vanderbilt and uh, Rockefeller both had the same answer that there was this other guy that was actually the guy. And I was immediately turned on to that. Um, and to finish up what you were talking about, just like the balance of life, you know, something I, I've mentioned it on this before, but it's something I think about often uh, that was told to me when I was younger is imagine you're sitting at your 80th birthday and your coworkers, your family, your friends, uh, your kids, everybody that's important to you is going to be at this birthday. And uh, your kids are going to get up and give a uh, speech about you, your wife is, your coworkers, your friends, the, the, the people that are closest to you. Uh, what are they going to say at that speech? And, and that could change depending on where you are in your life. If you're at a point right now where you know, you're not seeing your wife, your kids, you might not want them to write that speech then. But the best part of the whole um, exercise was you're going to write the speech for them. So you're going to write the speech of what you want them to say about you at your 80th birthday. And if what you're doing today isn't going to line up with that speech that they're going to give, you know, for, for us, that's going to be in 50 years. It gives you something to start changing now. Um, because yeah, I love that. Yeah. And just studying just studying, like, listen, every single person that I've read books about and I've had on the podcast is like, they're smarter than I am. And if they're struggling with this and they're making wrong decisions that they regret, what, like, it's so arrogant to think that I will not. Um, and so, and this is something that you have to, I have to check myself because like, I get to meet a lot of really interesting founders that are building fantastic uh, businesses and have generated in many cases, like just, you know, world-changing wealth. And I'm like, man, I should go do like chase something else in addition to the podcast. So I get there faster. And it's just like, oh, you mean you're going to let money like the, the lore of money or maybe your prestige or whatever you want to call this or opinions of, of people on the outside, like change what you do day to day. Then you're not listening to the, you're not learning the lessons that are, that are contained in these books. And so you pause like, oh, that's right. I already found what I want to do. Like, I'm going to do it to the best of my ability and I'll just let the score take care of itself. And th that's the biggest thing is like, don't be distracted. And I've had so many people that I I'm able to talk to and they're like, David, like, you'd be, so, you'd be shocked. He's like, you could have, and, and, the, and these people have had these experiences where it's like, 
$50 million is going to show up in your bank account one day. And you're going to be shocked at how fast, how one, how little it changes. If you've already, you know, been able to at least pay your bills and, you know, you know, do what you want to do, not worry about what dinner costs, that kind of stuff. But he's like, you're going to think it's going to change your world and you're going to be excited for a day, a week. And then you just go, it's this weird reversion back to like your normal happiness. And now you're like, okay. And in some cases, people make the mistake. It's like, I got 50. How do I get 150? Then they get 150. And they're like, how do I get a billion? I just did this episode. It's called a Silicon Valley story. Jim Clark, 38 years old, unsuccessful college professor, wife just left him, just fired from his job. He snaps. Goes from that to being the first person in history to found three separate uh, billion-dollar technology companies. And starts out in his early career. He goes, I just want to get 10 million. Then he gets 10 million. He goes, I just want to get 100 million. Then he gets 100 million. Because then I just want to get a billion. Then he gets a billion. He goes, then I just want to be the richest person in the world just for like a day. There's no, like, you know what I mean? Like you're, it, you have to stop. You have to realize like that's all fake. Like that, that it, it's, you're tormenting yourself. The difference in your life between if you have a billion or 10 billion is insignificant. <laughs> well, and you, I guarantee you not any autobiography you've ever read. Uh, Sam Walton didn't start Walmart because he wanted to be a billionaire. Kobe Bryant wasn't the best basketball player of all time uh, because he wanted to make a lot of money. Uh, you know, Steve Jobs wanted to build amazing products. If he had just wanted to be a billionaire, he probably would have never started Apple. That that at the time probably wasn't. There's yeah, never been a great a founder of... that was motivated by money from day one. That the act of being a billionaire, I guess, is what drove them to be successful. Because the problem is, if they did do it to just make money, and you see this more in like the investors or whatever, once they get there, it's just like, are it, like once they get there, like. If if you're doing it for money, a specific goal, like let's say it's a hundred million dollars, you you get there, like then you're gonna stop, but then you gotta find something else to do. So yeah, to your point, like you gotta have a, a goal bigger than that. And if you're the really good at what you do, the money's gonna come anyways. And there, I guess there's a lesson that's kind of uh, somewhat related to what we're talking about. Is my own diagnosis of this is like, I, what what is more important to the founder uh, founder or somebody with founder mentality is uh, they want independence and control. Like the the main motivator for an entrepreneur, people think is money because if, if done at the highest levels, entrepreneurship creates the greatest financial rewards in the world, right? But more important than that to them, to that personality type is independence and control. Control over what, like independence to work on what you want and control to make sure like you could do it the way you want to do it. And I said on this, this recent episode, the ego, the kind of ego that these founders have is they think, hey, if I have the independence and control, I'll get the money anyways. <laughs> just may it just may take longer. But I think if you ask, like, hey, do you want to, you know, would you rather would you rather make a fortune having like somebody else decide what you what you do with your day? Like, I think most people would take the independence and control and just trust they'll get the money. David, we crushed it today. Thank you very, very much for putting on an amazing episode. This was awesome. Thanks for inviting me in. I'm very glad that we got introduced. Me too. And uh, next time I'm in Texas, we got to see each other in person. I'm going to come see we you. We didn't even talk. I'm going to have, uh, we may not be here forever. Um, <laughs> my wife is still pushing. You know, I talked to you before. She's like, I think we're going to wind up in Austin because her 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 family's there. Oh, or yeah. Part of her family's there. But um, it's funny. We had We were having this conversation this morning. I was like, well, Chris and Mitchell, Mitchell's been sending me uh, 
uh, listings in Houston. I go, bro, I'm not moving to Houston. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I am going to come find you and, and we're going to hang out in person. Um, and I, and I, and I really mean it. You have lit a fire under me that nobody's been able to light under me the last four years. It's actually excited me the last month. And so I have to thank you for that. Hey everyone, it's Chris here again. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey. If you enjoyed the show, please follow the show on Apple, Spotify, or subscribe on YouTube. Thanks again, and I'll see you on the next episode. Chris Powers is the founder and chairman of Fort Capital LP. All opinions from Chris and guests of the Fort podcast are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fort Capital LP. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for real estate or investment decisions. The Fort with Chris Powers is produced by Straight Up Podcasts.